the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Cheap, cheap, fun, fun. Spring is in the air and Dirt Cheap is in your neighborhood ready to deliver the perfect drinks to your doorstep. That's right. All of Dirt Cheap's convenient locations now offer delivery of their wide selections of beers, wines, and all the spirits you need. And if you're like me, nothing hits better in the springtime than a nice weeded bourbon. Ask the friendly staff at Dirt Cheap about their selection of weeders like Maker's Mark, Larceny, and so many others. Download the Dirt Cheap app and order curbside or delivery. Have fun, but be careful out there. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alexiak to Cartier and a shot on. What a save, Bennington. Gordon's going to bring it out in. Shoot, save. Bennington rebounded. Gordon gets capping and stick checking it away. Thomas to Cairo. Score! Trading chances and the Blues get the goal. Cairo's first of the year. Thomas deeks. Shoot, score! Backhand underneath the crossbar. Brings it in on Bennington. Cuts it into the middle. Everly waits. Shoots, save! Bennington, bring out the Zamboni. It's a winner win for the St. Louis Blues, who picked up three out of four points on the first two games of the year. Two to one, the final tonight. Alongside Alex and T-Bone on BK, that's what it sounded like right here on 101 ESPN. You're home of the 1-0-1 St. Louis Blues. <laughs> Already starting off on a high note. <laughs> You're home. I was going to say you're home of the undefeated St. Louis Blues. Well, technically they undefeated are. Undefeated in regulation yeah. St. Louis well, Blues. undefeated in parts that matter. The shootout is a joke, right? There you go. Unless That's, they win. That is 100% correct. Jordan Bennington, fantastic once again on Saturday night against the Seattle Kraken. Alex, he's been great so far in the two games in which we've seen the Blues play. Now, disclaimer. He was great in the first, like, five games that the Blues played last year. Always putting disclaimers out. No, I'm not trying to take anything away from the performance that we've seen from him. He's been amazing. Everything you could have asked for and then some. You see some of the superlatives that uh, the Blues players not named Bennington were saying about him after the game on Saturday. Tells you everything you need to know. Thomas said he was outstanding. Pareko, Kyra, all the guys were saying the same thing about that performance by Jordan Bennington. Alex, so far, he has allowed two goals on 65 shots this year. That's a 970 save percentage on the season. You couldn't ask for much more. I do wonder, though, do you want to keep asking this much of him? But for right now, they're 1-0-1. You've got points in your first two games. Can't ask for much more. Great start to the year by Jordan. I I love everything that we're seeing from him because, once again, McKenna told us this on Friday. We talked about it. He looks calm in net. And when you look calm in net, that's a good sign for Jordan Bennington. And I think part of the reason he's looking so good is because he's not having to deal with those second and third opportunities in front of the net it's not those rebound chances that he's got no chance to take care of it's outside sometimes you're getting the turnovers in the defensive zone that needs to be cleaned up automatically 
But when it's in the the um, the blue zone and they're trying to keep things to the outside, they're doing a really good job of letting Bennington see in a clear path to those shots. So everything he's performing right now is why they changed this scheme so that Bennington didn't have to worry about dude standing behind him on this man-to-man scheme. You've got the front of the net taken care of for those backdoor passes. Eliminate those. Bennington can handle the rest. And odd man rushes, I mean, look, there have been more than I'd like to talk about early on, but Bennington's really good, and he always has been really good at those odd man rushes, breakaway two-on-ones, and then you get the uh, clutch moment save. So Jordan Bennington is the only reason this team has three points right now, because if not for him, we're talking about a team that's searching for their first point still in the season. It's one of the best goalies so far in the league at rebound control. Yeah. Uh, that's that's one of the things that's really stood out to me because we talked and about remember this. what McKenna said exactly don't on leave Friday rebounds. Mike McKenna hey with this kind of a scheme what you're doing defensively you can't allow those opportunities to be a, to be put in front of you at the at the net because you're going to get a lot of shots from the blue line and if you start allowing those things to hit you bounce off of you now you've got the pucks that are going crazy in front of the net the opposing offense is going to have a lot of high danger chances as a result well Bennington is saving those opportunities just stopping it or getting it out to one of his defensemen immediately. And that's allowing the blues to be able to have a little bit more clean opportunities in front of their net, as opposed to last year where man, everything was in front of the net. So Bennington is a big piece of that. We can talk all we want about the zone defense that they're playing. That's part of it. Another big crucial component of this is Jordan Bennington playing at a really high level and not allowing those rebounds to get in front of him. Yeah. And and those momentum saves too, that have been there too. We talked about it coming into the year. Bennington sometimes allows that backbreaker of a goal to come in or he doesn't make that big save that can turn momentum. And he's making those saves right now. Those odd man rushes that you just talked about, when he is being tested on those, if the defense doesn't break it up, he's making the save. And that's what you need from now to BK's question. Is this something that they can continue to put pressure on Bennington for? I'd probably lean on the we'd like to fix that part of the game because I don't think he continued to make those kind of momentum saves throughout the regular season. But right now he's doing his job. And to your point on the rebound control, it's very noticeable because there haven't been a ton of second chance opportunities that are right there in that like trapezoid that we talk about all the time. So I I like what we're seeing from Jordan Bennington. I think he's been the MVP of the season so far for the St. Louis Blues in just the small sample size two games. The other part of this too is like – Bennington has always been a guy that works better when he's got some competition behind him. And I I wouldn't be surprised if Joel Hofer gets a game on Thursday, just because you're going to want to get him some reps. And for how Bennington's playing, if Joel Hofer goes in, I I wouldn't either. I'd let Bennington keep rolling with it, but Joel Hofer probably hasn't played a game in three weeks at this point. He'll get in where he fits in. I think you play him in this one against Arizona, then Bennington, then you go back and forth. Regardless, Bennington's not playing 60-plus games this season. You're going to have somebody who can provide a similar style to Jordan Bennington in between the pipes, which is going to keep him fresher. And that's why, to, to ask this, I would lean more towards the side of Bennington can keep doing this as long as the defense sticks to what they're doing. I would say next week is when you see Hover for the first time because you've got you have four days off here. Sunday through Wednesday is off days for the Blues. And now they're going to be practicing and whatnot, but you've got a pretty decent amount of off time based on the way that the schedule's set up for them. And they play again on Saturday at home against Pittsburgh. That'll be a fun game for him. I would assume they'll want to get him out there again. And then probably like next Tuesday at Winnipeg. That's when I'd like to see Joel Hofer get his first start of the season. And then you've got a back-to-back Thursday and Friday. So maybe you go with Benner on Thursday against Calgary. On Friday, you allow Hofer to get that one on the back-to-back in Vancouver. And then the following week, Jordan Bennington against Colorado. 
And that's where things start to get really interesting once again for the Blues. But, man, he's been great. He's been great so far. He has lived up to every possible expectation that the most optimistic of Blues fans could have had for him. And he's the reason why right now you've been able to get points in each of your first two games of the season against Dallas and Seattle. Now, that being said, the offense is, I wouldn't say the red alarm bells are blaring for me yet, Alex, but it is a concern. It is something that I think we should be keeping an eye on and the Pavel Buchnevich injury plays into this so it was just announced Alex you said Jeremy Rutherford yeah, reported JR this. tweeted it out Pavel Buchnevich is expected to be out for one to two weeks with an upper body injury that he suffered on Saturday night that is something that I am very curious to see how the Blues handle because right now you're basically getting nothing offensively from any line other than the Thomas line. The other three lines that you've got going right now, they're they're giving you very little offensively. And as I think about what the personnel change is going to be, I mean, the, the easiest one is, hey, you go ahead and you bring up Alexandrov. He's going on to the fourth line and then Torpchenko is put somewhere into the top nine. That's yeah. kind of what they did on Saturday night. Maybe Jake Neighbors is that guy. I would probably rather see that. He's got a little more skill than Torbchenko. Alex, is that what you think they will or should do? Yeah, I because of course people are going to say, well, you call somebody up from the minors. Well, you do, but now you're going to have to worry about waivers again. And do you want to do the waivers thing again and worry if you yeah. lose a Walker or McEachern? So you could bring up a Bolduke or a Dean, but I always go back to what Army talked about in terms of making sure you're putting these guys in a good position. And I would imagine that you're going to want some reps for those guys in the minors before you bring them up. So right now you've got the extra forward. Alexandrov slots in. If this is a one to two week thing, luckily the schedule works in favor of the Blues. The hope is he can return for that trip through Canada next week. So, yeah, I would throw Alexandrov into a fourth line role. And frankly, I would shift neighbors up. Torbchenko got moved up in that game uh, Saturday night, but it was because he was playing with some intensity and Baruby likes to do that. I would start with neighbors playing on a second or a third line role because Saad's going to move up with Thomas and Kairou. You'll have Shannon Kapanen probably put a Jake neighbors there and keep Hayes and Blay and Verona together. Here's the issue though. You can throw anybody you want in. doesn't really matter. You don't replace Pavel Buchnevich. Yep. And the problem for losing Pavel Buchnevich isn't so much if you're losing what he offers it's you're losing what he offers to that line. And Thomas and Cairo line Saturday against Seattle, it was fine, but it's not generating a lot of offense. It's a lot of one and dones. Enter the zone, shoot, you're coming back out and it's off to the races. Maybe Brandon Saad can fix that, but what you need is you need Pavel Buchnevich who can be that puck hound, the one that's winning the battles. Saad could be it, but man, you need Booch back. So one to two weeks is better news than what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, how about this? The Blues players with the most high danger chances this year. You guys have any guesses who's number one on this list? Alex, I'm sure you didn't. You, you, I'm guessing you haven't seen this. I mean, I've I've looked at them post games, but I haven't looked at it like right now. My guess would, at five on five. Who do you think has the most high danger chances for the Blues this year? So it's got to be somebody on that Hayes and Blay and Verona line. It's Blay. Is it Blay? I was going to say Hayes. You know who's tied for second? There's two players that are tied for second in high danger chances so far for the Blues this year. I want to say it's... It's one of defensemen because that'd be great. Torpchenko? Tucker. No. No. Not, not Tucker. He has a goal. Come on. That's <laughs> yeah, a fair it was guess. on the blue line. So? Uh, Justin Falk's probably got oh, yeah, the Falk, high danger. He's one of them. So he had a lot of and shots. And then I'll throw... It's got to be another forward in this position. So let's say... I'll say Saad. Let's say Verona. Sonny. Sonny. Uh, makes Your sense. Your top three. Sammy Blay has three high danger chances so far this year. Leading the team through two games. 
Oscar Sundquist and Justin Falk both have two. No other player on this roster so far through the first two games of the year has multiple high danger chances at five on five. This team is not getting enough good no. looks offensively. I can hear as much as you want about this quality over quantity idea that the Blues are going with this year. And that's all fair and good that 2019 Cup team, they were also quality over quantity. But it's at some point, you got to start directing some pucks at the net, man. 24 shots on goal in a game when 20 of those 24 shots are from the outside boards. That's not an easy way to score goals. By the way, I do want to correct myself. JR just tweeted it uh, or sent it to me. Uh, the guys, if they call somebody up on waivers, they stay for 20 games or 30 days without needing waivers to go back. So you can avoid the waiver situation if you bring up Nathan Walker or something like that for 20 games or 30 days. Can I tell you who I would like to see come up? I think it's the same one I would. I'd like to see Bolduc. Yeah. Add Especially some skill for to offense. this lineup, man. Yeah. Some skill and speed is what this team desperately needs right now. Now, they're winning games in a, a, in a low-scoring way. So if you think that you can continue doing that for a two-week stretch maybe you say you know what screw it we're just going all in with this identity and maybe instead of a guy like bull duke you decide hey zachary dean makes more sense for us or alexandrov is the player that we just want to insert into the lineup and maybe you add a nathan walker as a depth piece he's your 13th uh, forward for the next couple of weeks there, i suppose there's other ways to go about it but the guy that I would really like to see, especially coming off of a camp where by the end, I think the Blues seemed pretty optimistic about his outlook. I'd, I'd like to see Bolduc. Yeah, I, I I would too. And I think it makes sense because we'll see it no, we won't. We'll keep Alex. Or they'll keep Alexandrov here and then they'll go that way. They'll keep Bolduc down and playing in a line with Zach Dean. Um, but it would make sense if you went that route because Saad moves up and you could put Bolduc in an ideal situation with a Shen and Kapanen who are both responsible players and let Bolduc do his thing. But they're going to keep him on a number one power play unit in Springfield. They're going to keep him playing significant ice time and put Alexandrov in this spot and let Jake neighbors. This is what Jake neighbors is here for he's to be the swiss army knife that if you lose somebody you move him up to a bigger role and he can play into that spot for you he's alex ferrario that's tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley blues are off for the next few days they'll be back in action on thursday night alex will have pregame coverage for that one right here in your home for the blues 101 espn thursday at six o'clock coming up in about 15 minutes or so we'll give you our football pick and reveal it's a good weekend for your boy felt good Got off the schneid. It took me five weeks, but I'm officially heated up and warmed up for this football season. So we'll get to those picks coming up at 1130. But coming up next, speaking of being on a heater, Mizzou football might be in for a season unlike anything we've experienced in a decade. Saturday showed us that they can win in ways unforeseen. We'll talk about it coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Big lead. Look at fake it and the throw to the sideline. The momentum's away from you, and you got to counterpunch and settle in, and that's what we did. We counterpunched, and everybody just settled in like, okay, we're, we, we belong here. We're going to be fine. I just, I'll be honest, man, it's surreal. Right now, it was 14 nothing, and we looked like dog in the first quarter, and then now we're, you know, talking about a 38-21 win. 
That is a tribute to that team and staff in that locker room. Man, that's the kind of win I didn't think that Missouri was capable of. Audio courtesy of SEC Network alongside T-Bone and Alex on BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We will reveal our football pick results coming up here in about 15 minutes or so. If you guys want to get involved in the show, 314-399-9646 is the place to do so. That is the Air Comfort Service text line. Alex, Missouri 6-1. and one. They won on the road at Kentucky for the first time in a decade. That had been... A place that Missouri goes and finds the most horrendous ways possible to lose. And on Saturday, it looked like they were doomed for the same result. They go down 14 to nothing in the first quarter. They looked awful. The defense looked terrible. The offense looked lifeless. They looked unprepared. Nothing about that resembled the team that we had seen in the first six weeks of the season. And then everything switched on that call that you heard there, the fake punt. It's a gutsy call, man. You're on the opposing side of the 50-yard line. It's a really long kick there. You got the 39-yard line, I believe, so it would have been a 56-yarder. Now, can thicker kicker make that? Absolutely. Sure can. It's a tough kick, though, especially in those conditions. So they decide, you know what, we're going to line up for a punt. And I'm sitting there losing my mind at home. <laughs> I'm like, drink what's, dude. It's fourth and ten. I get it. But come on, man. You either got to kick it here you got to go for it. Like You got to be a little aggressive in this spot because so far you've been lifeless as a team. That's when he, in a press conference afterwards, would say, it's not your job, Brandon. It's not my job. And also he would say, I know everybody thinks that I'm not aggressive, but watch this. <laughs> and then I watched. And Luke Baker, the backup punter entering the season, Pretends as if he's going to punt, takes about two steps, and then drops back and throws mm. a dime to Marquise Johnson going down the far sideline, who, as a true freshman, has made like seven massive plays so far this year that have completely altered the course of the season for Mizzou. And man, from that moment on, it was as if a light had been switched and Mizzou became the team that we all expected them to be going into the weekend and Kentucky failed in a big spot. Missouri was 0-7 going into this weekend when trailing by multiple scores in the first quarter under Eli Drinkwitz. 0-7 under Eli. And in that game, they find a way to come back. Man, that was a big cojones type of performance from this team, and it opens up so much of what this season can become. I mean, look, I I, I still go back to what I said after uh, the, the second game of the season and complained that drink is just not creative and aggressive enough and you need more of it. Man, that man had church bells in that game because to be able to call that, and I heard Kerry talk about it this morning on opening drive, and he's absolutely correct. If you decide to punt that and give it back, they score a touchdown, you might as well just call game because you're down 21 nothing in the first quarter it's over you're not winning on the road but instead drink even knew he said in the press conference like we pretty much had to convert there because we had to score some points and from that moment it was him basically telling his team we're all in these boys we know our offense is great defense we've got your back we're going to go out there and we're going to get this score they scored that and then from the rest of the game they didn't allow a touchdown until the third quarter I mean, that was the more impressive part for me. You know that the offense is great. They've scored like 38-plus points every single game. But for them to allow 14 in the first quarter and then eliminate it for the rest of the night, that was the impressive part for me. So that punt really started everything. The fake punt to get that first down basically said, we know our offense will beat this Kentucky team. Defense, do, do go do your job and we'll be fine. Our text line brings up a fair point about the play, too. They said the fake punt was so bizarre because Kentucky knew it was coming. You could see all of their coaches signaling as much on the sideline. They dropped back into coverage. They had the fake punt team on the field. And then the punter threw a perfect pass, beat the coverage with his pass, and the receiver made an amazing catch. Absolutely. 
It was about execution. Yeah. And that's what has impressed me about Mizzou this year. It has not been about them. Now, there are times when they outscheme their opponents. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of it is just they're out executing the teams that they're going up against. And when you have that ability to go out there and just let your dudes go be their best versions of themselves, man, it allows you to do a lot. They play free. And for Marquise Johnson to be able to go out there as a true freshman on the road, big time environment, Kentucky team that's coming off of a brutal loss with everything in front of them, just the way that you had everything in front of you. Night environment, place you haven't really had any success since joining the SEC. For you to go make that play in that spot against that team, it's huge. I I can't overstate it. Alex, you mentioned how Missouri was down at the end of the first quarter and they, they just looked dead in the water. Yeah. At that point, you're down 14 to nothing. Kentucky has outrushed you. They have had 111 yards on the ground. You had 16 total yards of offense in the first quarter. After the first quarter, you dominated. 38 to 7 outscoring Kentucky. You outgained Kentucky 308 to 149. Kentucky was 4 for 5 on their first five third down conversions. They went 1 for 8 on third down the rest of the game. They had one drive over the next two quarters that went more than 10 yards. Kentucky got completely shut down by Missouri after that first quarter. I don't know what the adjustments were, but whatever it was, it clearly worked for Mizzou. The other thing is, man, I I didn't know Missouri could win a game like that. I didn't know Missouri could win a game where Luther Burden has 15 yards offensively. Two catches, 15 yards, all coming on the same drive. I thought that was their offense. I thought their offense was, hey, Luther, go be great. And in this game, Luther didn't have a very good game. Brady Cook didn't play particularly well. The running game was shut down really for the first three quarters. Finally got going in the fourth quarter. Your defense won you that game. Your special teams won you that game. And you played a little bit of ball control in field position style of football. Man, that's what I would. I would have said Kentucky wins that way. You just went out there, played Kentucky-style football in Lexington and beat Kentucky with their brand of football. Mm -hmm. That's what's so impressive to me is we've now seen Mizzou has multiple ways to win. We talked about this in the past with with the Blues. like Two years ago, it was a team that could, you want to play two to one? We got you. You want to play six to five and we need to win in a shootout? We can do that too. That's what Missouri is starting to show me that they're capable of doing. And now with this Brock Bowers news, if you haven't seen it, oh, Georgia's yeah. superstar tight end is going to be out the next four to six weeks. He's one of the best players in the country. He's a future top 10 pick in the NFL draft. He is basically their offense, at least in terms of their passing game. He is to them what Luther Burden is to Mizzou. He's out four to six weeks with a high ankle sprain that he required surgery for. Alex, Missouri is going to take on South Carolina for homecoming this weekend. Then they have an off week. And then they play Georgia on the road at Georgia. Everything that Mizzou wanted to accomplish coming into the season is still on the table. If you run the table this year, you're going to the SEC championship game and you'll have the opportunity to make some crazy things possible if you're able to get there. I think at this point, the bare minimum is nine wins. I think if you're a Mizzou fan and you're hoping and expecting 10 wins, I think it's totally reasonable for you to do so. This is one of those seasons that comes around about once every eight or nine years for Mizzou. And for that to be possible at this point in the Eli Drinkwitz era is really encouraging. Man. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. You've got six wins already. You were talking about, or no, it's five wins, right? Why am I missing on the schedule? For Mizzou? Six. Yeah, six. Okay, so it is six. Second guess myself. You were talking South Carolina, feel like that's a win. Arkansas, feel like that's a win. Florida, feel like that's a win. So the two that we're down to to make this a 10-win season 
is Tennessee or Georgia. And with this Brock Bauer news, I know people are saying, like, can they really beat Georgia? The offense can. And what I saw defensively with Kentucky, yeah, you might have an opportunity that you have the superstar player out of this lineup. And I feel like Missouri's a better team than Tennessee also. So, yeah, I'm looking at a successful season. And you know the part that gets me more excited about this, PK, is a successful season like this, where the SEC has kind of taken a step back and it's not like the top-heavy Alabama and Georgia and then everyone else. This helps in recruiting, Absolutely. and he's already killing it in the recruiting class, but imagine what it does when you have a 10-win season for the Mizzou Tigers that has a legit bowl game to brag about, and then you carry that over the next couple of seasons when guys start decommitting and committing to Mizzou. Yeah, this is a successful season for Drinkwitz. We've got a couple of texts from the 636 and the 314. This one from the 636. Guys, why are we celebrating the fact that Mizzou gets to play Georgia without Bowers? Because they may be awarded a discounted win? Because it helps you potentially win the football game. Like, I hope Brock Bowers gets back healthy and he ends up being an amazing football player for the next 15 years in the NFL. Why am I celebrating the fact that Mizzou might not have to play against him? Because he's awesome. Like, why would you celebrate if the Cardinals went into the playoffs and they got to go up against, I don't know, the Phillies without Zach Wheeler? Well, because you don't have to play Zach Wheeler and now your chances of advancing are a little bit better. I celebrated when the Blues took on the Stars and Rope Hints wasn't in the lineup. Yeah, if it helps you win, you celebrate it. That's just the reality of how this thing works, man. If you if you want to go up against the best of the best and you want to always beat them, hey, man, more power to you. My philosophy is find a way to get the wins. And this makes it more likely that Missouri is able to get that win. Somebody else on the text line said, guys, the Mizzou Tigers just need to win this week first and then figure out everything else. Sure, that is their perspective. (laughs) Our perspective on the outside looking in is that we can talk about what the big picture is because of their win over the weekend. They had two swing games coming into the season. One was against Kansas State. The other was against Kentucky. They are 2-0 in those games so far this year, and because they have started the season 2-0 in their swing games, everything that we hoped that could be on the table is now on the table. And then some, honestly. I didn't know that they were going to be able to have a special season. I thought the hope would be, hey, if you win those two swing games, now you can get to eight. Well, because Tennessee has taken a little bit of a step back, South Carolina is not as good as a lot of people expected them to be. Florida is, Arkansas is losing every game by one score so far this year. You look at the remainder of your schedule, there is not a single game on the schedule that is not winnable. There are a lot of games that you could say you're not picking them to win, but they're all winnable for Mizzou. It's a good place to be. You beat Georgia. Let's say you beat Tennessee. You win out the rest of the way. Not a college football playoff team. Beat Georgia and say that again. You beat Georgia. You win out the rest of the season. And does that include the college football playoff or the, the SEC championship? Yeah. Win out. I, are you a college football playoff team? It, there are so many different circumstances that go into this to where it's really hard to predict because it depends on what happens in the Pac-12 with Oregon and Washington. It depends on what happens in the Big Ten with those teams and who ends up beating who and what their records are at the end of the year. It depends on what happens in the ACC with Florida State. Do they lose a game? Depends on what happens in the Big 12 with Oklahoma. Do they lose a game down the stretch? So it's a long way to say this. Maybe. Maybe, but it requires a little bit of help. That one loss on Mizzou's schedule is going to hurt them. If anything, we're talking about a significant bowl game, though, which once again, that is the if you could have asked me what a successful year looks like for the Missouri Tigers, it was that because now everything changes moving forward with Eli Drinkwitz. 
Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. In 15 minutes, we're getting to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you guys want to get your questions in, I know I've got a question for T-Bone about his Illini. We'll get to that Woo-hoo! coming up here in just a little bit. But next, speaking of his Illini, he picked against them this weekend in the Pick'em Challenge. Idiot. How'd that go for T-Bone? We'll tell you next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. and T-Bone on BK coming up in about 15 minutes. We'll get to our questions and answers, but right now it is time for our football pick em reveal. It was a good weekend for your boy. I'm feeling frisky on a Monday morning. Come on, man. Don't say that. It's the first time I've been able to have any sort of optimism coming off of a weekend the entire time that we've been doing this. So we are officially two weeks in on the current football pick em challenge. We do these every single month. We get four weeks in the course of that pick em challenge. And then at the end of that month, Somebody's going to get punished. So, Alex, this past weekend, we all went into the weekend with three games, three picks on a confidence scale of one to three. Let's start with T-Bone, who opened things up with a pick that I didn't like on Friday. USC? My number one point play this week, St. Louis, America, trust me. USC's the better football team. Put away that four-leaf clover. There ain't no luck of the Irish. Put on your Trojan helmet. USC's going on the road. Give me the two-and-a-half point play well, for USC. Two possession game and here we go. This is Price bringing it out trying to return of his own. That's yeah, Darren Price turning on the Jets. 20-10 touchdown Monday. Wow. Just like BK is always in a bad spot when he says can somebody explain anytime you say St. Louis listen up. Not a good way to start it, my man. In my defense, five turnovers. Caleb, not Caleb Williams was more of the problem than their defense. <laughs> good which thing is, Caleb Williams. I had, had, did not have that on my bingo good card. Good thing Caleb Williams had all of the scouts in attendance. Sam Hartman threw for 125 yards and Notre Dame won 48 to 20. Yeah. Do you know yeah, how I, hard that is? Do you know how hard it is to throw for 125 yards and put up 48 points? I thought for sure. So I thought the whole reason I took that because I thought that would be kind of close and I could yeah. see it being a shootout. I didn't expect like I didn't expect the USC's defense to play well. I didn't expect Caleb Williams to give the ball away three times, and one of those like resulted in them having the ball at, like the one. USC's a fraud. Like that's what we learned on Saturday. What Lincoln we learned Riley on Saturday too. is that USC is a fraud, and they haven't played anybody meaningful in the Pac-12 yet. I- I'm genuinely curious to see what their final record is. Eight and four is not off the table. I mean, they still have to play Utah, Washington, Oregon, and UCLA. They have not played a single-ranked opponent prior to this past weekend. They really struggled against Arizona, which was the best team at that point that they had played. They should be on a two-game losing streak. USC's a fraud. And Caleb Williams is still really, really good. He's had a couple of rough games in a row. He's still the future number one overall pick. But, yeah, man, that was was not good. Chicago's GM left there be like, we sure we're not happy with Justin Fields? Drake May, there's some buzz. Maybe he's the guy that ends up going number one. Speaking of the Chicago Bears, Alex. Yeah. How are you feeling about your pick, buddy? I'm taking the home team. That's the underdog. I'm saying the Chicago Bears plus three against the Vikings. Pressure coming here. And the ball is out. And the Vikings pick it up. Down the sideline. Goes Jordan Hicks. And Hicks is in for the scoop and score. 
What I didn't see happening on my bingo card was Minnesota's defense being the uh, better of the two in that game. It might have Remember Tyson Badgett? We yeah. talked about him a couple of weeks yeah. ago. The man from Shepherd College. In my defense. He ended up playing in that game. Justin Fields got injured. Duh Otherwise, bears. we'd be talking about a different outcome. Way, I don't know that it hurt them. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that back up, hurt them. that went to like a D3 school looked better. They had 115-yard passing in this game against Minnesota's defense, dude. <laughs> I, Not good, Bob. Their offense is just broken. Not great. The Bye. offense is broken. Their defense actually played pretty well. I mean, you're going up against a Vikings offense that's been really good most of the year. Now, they're without Justin Jefferson, but they played really well against them. Unfortunately, they scored 13 points, and they allowed a fumble to be recovered and taken back for a touchdown, and bada-boom, bada-bing, you lose. When that backup quarterback yeah. came in, I was like that Leonardo DiCaprio meme where I was like sitting in my chair and I went, oh, I know that guy. He pointed at my TV. <laughs> <laughs> I know that guy. I've talked about him for three yeah. minutes on the radio one time. All right. Uh, the single most surprising outcome of the weekend, though, took place yesterday midday. And Alex and I both suffered the consequences. The Cleveland Browns decided that they don't want to play Deshaun Watson again. Oh, wait. No, no, no. no. Let me fix that. Yeah. Deshaun Watson has decided that he still does not want to play football. Give me the 49ers minus the nine and a half points. They're not only going to win this game, their defense is going to outscore Ooh. the Browns offense. 49ers minus nine and a half against the Giants. Like, wait, it's not it's not the Giants? No. Or is that the Bills? Bills. Who are the Niners got? Yeah. What are you doing? I looked at the wrong game. I swear that they had the Giants. Yeah. I'm going to also go with so my 2 like point the 49ers. Play. I do like the 49ers. They're going to flip it too high. He's got blocks. Kareem Hunt all the way. Touchdown, Cleveland. Not you, only, you deserve that. Yeah, not only did I look, I get it. There I should have switched my pick after yeah. you picked yeah. it. Like it was it was a bad bad decision to go with one that I looked at the schedule wrong. But then Kareem bleeping Hunt is the reason that they win. Like, what's going on here? So, should have looked at the schedule the right way. Probably. I heard a podcast after our show on Friday that gave me serious concerns about this one. Apparently. The Kyle Shanahan offense really struggles against this specific defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. Schwartz, the defensive coordinator for the Browns, has gone up against it like 12 times, and his teams have shut them down offensively like 10 of the 12 games. He looked like a villain. He Did you see, like, they would cut to the camera to him and he had, like, a smirk on his face. I was like, oh, that guy's just He's having awesome. a great he knows. time. <laughs> that defense is really good. I, I don't know if the Browns offense is fixable. I would say it's probably not. Amari Cooper looked really good in this one, had an unbelievable catch down the sideline, probably the best catch that I saw this weekend. But the defense was the story of the game, man. I don't come away feeling bad about the 49ers offense. I think the 49ers offense is still awesome. They ran into a buzzsaw over the weekend, and I underestimated how good that defense could be for Cleveland. So uh, that obviously went poorly. I just looked at the wrong schedule and just (laughs) went with it. So what also went poorly for T-Bone this weekend, getting all the losses out of the way early. Picking against your own squad, man. Really? Idiot. Of course, Uh, my three point play here. Guys, I hate picking against the boys. But Illinois, it's not me. It's freaking you. You are the reason that I am so negative about this program. You guys aren't good at anything. Nice. Anything. Maryland's going to kick their butt this weekend. Give me Maryland minus 13 and a half against the Illini. For the win. Griffin is good. Illinois upsets Maryland on homecoming. Can't be happy. Did, did you guys hear the, the post game celebration in the locker room? They were all ch- jumping up and down and chanting, Bleep T Bone! Bleep T Bone! <laughs> Looked like an inspired effort. Hey man, I set the over under last week at one and a half on wins the rest of the way. They're that was your there. one. <laughs> well, let's. Win, oh, come on, they got three that they could win. Yeah. 
You can beat Northwestern. Yeah, there's 50-50 games on the schedule. On the road at Minnesota might be a little tough, but if you can beat Maryland on the road, you can beat Minnesota on the road. Maryland, Wisconsin's quarterback is hurt going into this upcoming weekend. They may not lose again. Let's go. In all seriousness, T-Bone, you couldn't have been any lower on your squad after their loss against Nebraska. Fair, justifiably (laughs) so. How you feeling today, man? Uh, you know, but nice if they would have told me they were going to show up and give a good effort <laughs> at Maryland. Um, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how to feel about that win because I think it's more Maryland's a fraud. Um, and like, and still question if they can win most of those games that we just said. Like, I'm very concerned they can't be bowl eligible. And you know my thoughts about eligibility. Six wins ain't a whole lot to celebrate. So I'm kind of down on them still. All right. So those are the losses for the week. Let's get to the winning side of things. Yeah. We did have some winners. Now T Bone didn't have many, but the two of us, Alex, we we had some. <laughs> most specifically, I I I had multiple winners this weekend. Uh, let's start out with the one that really was never in question for us. My two point play for the week. I think the Detroit Lions have been one of the best teams in the NFL so far this year. Give me the Lions minus the three points. I don't think this one's even going to be in question. Yeah, that's mine. That, so this was my two-point play. Goff looking deep. Wants it all. Jamison Williams looking for the ball. Got it. Touchdown. I did not expect David Montgomery to get hurt midway through this one. I did not ex- expect him to finish with 14 yards on the ground. Best thing that could have happened. But Amon Ross St. Brown had a huge day. Jamison Williams coming up with a huge catch that you just heard there. And Sam Laporta continues to be a big piece of this offense as well. They just, man, the Detroit Lions, I don't know if I would consider them to be an elite team. I would consider them to be, though, right on the verge of that. I consider At some point, we got to take them very seriously. And them going on the road and only being a three-point favorite against a very mediocre Tampa Bay team, hey, man, I I thought that was way too good of a spot to to pass up. I consider their offense to be elite. I mean, now, sure. and now if Williams is playing, now losing Montgomery takes a massive blow for how they perform, but maybe they'll actually start using Jameer Gibbs for once. But, like, Jamison Williams being that on top of having Amon Ross St. Brown and Laporta and Josh Reynolds with Jared Goff, like, yeah, I think they have an elite offense that can be tough to deal with this season. And T-Bone decided to go with a team that we were all wondering, are they going to be able to get up off the mat? Was last week more of what we'll see the rest of the way? Or are they going to settle into the mid-tier of the AFC? The Seahawks? Oh, man, I, I fell in love with them. You know, I thought they were going to be a team that could compete with the NFC West. They see. You know, they're, they're okay. They're going to make the playoffs. Their, their defense is getting too much hype after that game where they played, checks notes, the crappy Giants. Um, so I, I like the Bengals, minus two and a half. First and goal. Fake it. Burrow sells it. Buying time. Burrow waiting. Throws. Touchdown. Offense very much not fixed. Yeah, oh, no. God, no. Bengals offense very much not fixed. Whoa. That Seahawks defense is not great. The Bengals offense was able to put up all of, uh, check those, 17 points. Buck 85 through the air. Jamar Chase, another good day. Otherwise, they didn't have much going for them offensively. T-Bone, I never really felt great about your chances of being able to win this game. I thought Seattle looked better for a decent portion of the game. Credit to the Bengals defense. That is why they won that game. Lou Anarumo continues to be, in my opinion, the best defensive coordinator in the NFL right now. Big win for the Bengals. They are now very much back alive in the AFC mix. They have kept themselves alive going into this bye week in the tough stretch coming up. San Francisco in Buffalo coming out of the bye. Good win for you, buddy. Yeah, they needed that, and so did I, because I was panicked of a big old goose Dude. egg in my win column. So that one counted for two points for T-Bone. Good win for you. By the way, I got uh, three points from the Lions. Alex got two points. Or, excuse me, the opposite. I yeah. got two points from the Lions. Alex got three points on that one. Good pick, Alex. My final pick of the week was one that 
had me terrified going in and going My three-point play going back to the well. Give me the Ravens minus the four that, points. God, that's a bad idea. In this London. has never gone poorly for me before. Oh, no. This game's in London. Too oh, late. Two, hand came oh, off the no, chest piece. I forgot. Lamar dancing around. Flings it to Flowers. Touchdown. I think for lunch yeah. in Baltimore also forgot that yeah. the game was in London. They didn't really show up for that one. Well, what else uh, is new? They the never Titans do. offense was awful. Absolutely horrendous in that one. The Ravens got into the red zone. Don't, don't check me on this. I think this is an unofficial count. 77 times Good. and scored, I think, three points on those 77 red zone appearances. Now, that is not exactly correct. They got there six times and scored a touchdown one time. It was a brutal performance by Baltimore. I do not consider them to be in the elite class of the AFC at this point. They've shown me too much to feel the opposite, but I'll take the points where I can get them. Alex, coming out of two weeks in the football pick'em challenge, you were at five points. You went one and two this week. T-Bone is at six points. He went one and two this week as well. I am also at six points. I went two and one this week. So we are all right there in that muddled middle. We are uh, we are all right around 500 through the first two weeks of this Pick'em Challenge, and things are going to be determined over the next couple of weeks. Just uh, keep thinking that you're in first place. Look behind you, because I'm going to be DK Metcalf. I'm going to catch up with both of you guys by the end of this I feel one. like I'm starting to hit my groove. Yeah. I think this is, this sure. is the time when I'm going to start to turn things around, and much like last year, second half... Uh, type of picker second laugh didn't look man i'm not i'm not giving for you actually i think you lost more games in the second half last year i'm not giving you much credit for when i went because games in london you were like in london (laughs) well every every blind squirrel finds his nut my man i have a request though like when t-bone loses because that's who's going to lose this week sure can he wear a bib when he eats the baby food for the punishment? Absolutely. Okay. I found some good bibs on Amazon. Good. I have some cocoa melon ones at home that you can wear. Cocoa I've got a bunch melon? of bibs going on right now. Baby boy's teething at home, so we've just got bibs all over. I'll, I'll grab one for My you. My two buddy. girls are just in the <laughs> stages where they just spit all the time. Uh, Coming up in 10 minutes or so. No. Got a BK buildup for you, Alex. Uh, I'm out. The three <laughs> issues that seem to be plaguing the Blues through the first two games of the season. I think they're correctable. We'll see if that ends up being the case. We'll get to that coming up at the top of the hour. Questions and answers is coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Let's get to questions and answers. If you guys have any questions, get them in on the Air Comfort Service X line, 314-399-9646 for your questions to get in. I like this one from the 314. Guys, now that Nola and Montgomery have clearly outpriced themselves to be signed by the Cardinals, who's Mosellock going to pursue? First of all, I don't agree with the premise. I don't think that they have outpriced themselves from the Cardinals. Yeah, nobody's ever going to outprice themselves for the Cardinals. Let's do talk a little bit about Montgomery. We'll get to Nola here in a second. But has he worked his way at all back into your guys' thought process of what the Cardinals could or should do this offseason? I mean, he absolutely has for me. He's pitching like a legit number one through this postseason. The problem is I don't know if he's in the or I don't know if he's in his plans or the Cardinals are in his plans mostly because you were there you played you saw it now you go to a team that's going deep into the postseason if i'm jordan montgomery man i think that ship might have sailed in terms of the cardinals call me and say hey we're interested 
yeah, I think I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah, I I don't see a reunion coming for the Cardinals in Jordan Montgomery. I think he might actually stay in Texas. I think what Texas is seeing, they're going to say, I think you have to. We've got to consider bringing this guy back. And then maybe they trade from their plethora of starting pitchers. Cause, or they just say, hey, the more the merrier, and they carry like seven guys. But it feels very Dodgers to me. That's what I was thinking Dodgers too. Dodgers make sense. Dodgers start with Snell, and if they don't get Snell, they fall back here. I do think he's going to get overpaid, though, this offseason. And that's, like, not a shot against him. him. Like, good for him. I mean, this guy's been shoving ever since he got traded to the Cardinals from the Yankees. So, but he's a guy that I, it feels like he's played to a bigger contract than everyone's expecting. And then maybe he pitches well, but just doesn't live up to it. We said this a few times during the season. I think they just need change. Like, sometimes change for change's sake is not necessary, but I think here it is. And I would like to see them bring in some new faces, some new voices, and some new personalities it's not a shot again at jordan montgomery i think he was really well liked inside of that clubhouse have you seen any interviews with him he's, he's a really likable dude but i think it's just time man so this is not to suggest if he wanted to come back here yeah he's a good pitcher who's shown he can really perform well in the postseason i would have no problem with them signing jordan montgomery i just think there's other guys that i would probably prefer because there's other players in that same range I think make more sense for the Cardinals, Sonny Gray being chief among them. Uh, from the 314, guys, what do you think it is that the Blues do well is, that they can rely on for the entirety of the season? Uh, I, I think they have top goaltending in the league. We were seeing that, and when we get to see Joel Hofer play, we're going to see that also. Like, I think they have a duo that is going to be towards the tops in the NHL in terms of goaltending duos. And frankly, I do think their defense is an area that they can thrive off of. And look, I know the shot selection hasn't been good. And frankly, really, the offense is is a little bit of a concern. But I mean, they're playing the style that Burby's been preaching for them to play the last couple of seasons, stating this team's got to get comfortable in one goal games and be able to win them. And they're doing that. I know it's not pretty. I know that they're both shootouts. But look, they're not allowing a lot of high danger chances to either the Stars or the Kraken in two games. Does that hold up? That remains to be seen, but I think that's what they do well right now, which seems crazy to say. Yeah, I, I think right now that's what they do well. I'm not 100% sold if that's going to be the thing throughout the season. I still want to see a bigger sample size. One thing that I'm willing to put like the T-bone stamp of approval on is the PK. I think the PK looks legit, and it looks really good. I, I think that is going to sustain, and that is something they're going to need. I, they're going to have to figure out the power play. The power play can't be 0 for 7 yeah. or 2 shots. That does not get the they, T-bone stamp of approval. No, it does not. They're going to have to figure that out, but if your penalty kill looks better than it did last year, that's going to significantly help this team. Cause last year they could never buy themselves a PK stop when they needed it. I think it is the, the goal suppression. That's, that's what they have to be good at this year yeah. because it's becoming increasingly clear that this team's not going to win by outscoring its problems this time around. We'll get into that more coming up here in just a minute. Final thing here from the three, one, four guys, the morning show was talking today about the idea of Yadier Molina joining the staff as the pitching coach. If he was brought in for the coaching staff, your thoughts on that? Uh, I think there's a 0% chance like zero as, as, as a one pitching coach. There's oh, God. I, no, this team really believes in Dusty Blake. You yeah. don't have to agree with them. That's fine. This team wants to go down the path of that style of pitching. And by that style, I mean the same style that is working in other markets, guys. The Astros do this. The Minnesota Twins do this. All the teams that are succeeding, they do the things that the Cardinals are trying to implement into their system. Hell, the Texas Rangers do this stuff. I know that Mike Maddox is this old school guy. If you guys think that the Texas Rangers aren't implementing analytics and pitch modeling into their organization, you're fooling yourself. They absolutely are. So 
This is the kind of stuff that the Cardinals are working with, and that is not to suggest that Yachty won't do any of those things. I think he's going to have to if he wants to be a manager in Major League Baseball nowadays. But if he's going to join this staff, I think it will be as a bench coach. I think that will be the role that you'll see him announced as, and he will have other things that he helps with. Will he help with the pitching? Of course he will. He's got an expertise in that area. Much like Matt Holliday was supposed to help with the hitting last year, that'll be just something that is underneath his umbrella of obligations within the organization. If he's hired, I think the position will be as a bench coach. For, for the people that are concerned about Dusty Blake moving forward with him in this organizational mindset, you're about to get a slap back into reality this offseason if you're trying to pursue some of these top free agents and they don't want to come to St. Louis because you haven't implemented what other teams have in terms of growing the pitching style in Major League Baseball today. We heard Michael Waka talk about it with what he learned, where he went. And unless they like really back this Dusty Blake mindset, you're not going to be in free agent starting pitchers. You're going to have to develop. And let's be all honest, the development hasn't been pretty over these last few years. Yeah, Dusty's in the same role Jeff Albert was in, yeah. except the pitching side of things, to where he is going to be the guy that's going to help kind of get this organization back to playing modern baseball with pitching. Pitching's been lacking for them the last couple of years. It finally came back and nipped them in the heels this year. He's going to be the guy moving forward, whether you like it or not. And I've been critical of his in-game adjustment with pitchers, but like he wasn't going to be able to help those guys last year. They just didn't have pitching. Coming up next, I've identified three things that have me concerned. Not panicking, but, you know, concerned about the Blues over the long haul. Alex really likes this team, of course, came into the season being optimistic about them. I want to throw my three concerns Alex's way to find out what is his level of concern on these things. Am I overreacting? Is it a small sample size that is going to turn around or... Is it something that is a legitimate concern long-term? We'll get to the three biggest questions that I have concern-wise about the Blues coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. T-Bone, I'm BK. So I want to start out with the positive. Your St. Louis Blues are 1-0-1 on the season. That's a that's an overwhelmingly positive thing. <clears throat> the defense has clearly improved. They are giving up fewer grade A chances than they did a year ago. Jordan Bennington is playing as he did early on last year, but playing like the goalie that we all hoped and believed he could be. And we've seen him capable of being at times in the past. Those are all really, really positive things, Alex. But there are things early on in the season that I am monitoring, not that they're going to completely hinder the season and hinder this team's ability to compete, but things that could get to that point if they don't get corrected. So I wanted to throw a few things your way, the three areas of the team that I am wondering, is this going to be a long term problem? And I want to get your thoughts on it. All right. A T-bone three. I'm going to call this a BK buildup. T-bone, hit my open. <laughs> Number one. Sounds about right. <laughs> the offense is way too one and done, man. They're not getting many shots on goal. And when they do, it's typically a one and done opportunity. They have been outshot at five on five 
53 to 39 so far this season. They have given up 20 high danger chances. They have a total of 14 high danger chances so far on the season. The guys that have the most for them, Sammy Blay is at number one. That's not what you want. And that's not a shot against Sammy Blay. It's just not who should lead this team in high danger chances. And then tied for second, the only two players that have multiple opportunities that are high danger chances, not named Sammy Blay, Oscar Sundquist and Justin Falk. Man, where's your top line? Those are guys that should be generating some serious offense. This team has not done well enough offensively through the first couple of games of the season. Their lack of opportunities, their lack of quality chances, and the one-and-done nature of the offense has me a bit concerned overall about what they're doing at 5-on-5 five five so far this year. Yeah, I'm not panicking about this one yet. This is one of those areas that I'd like to give it a full month before I can really get concerned, mostly because... In the first couple of games of the season, you do have that that feeling out process with the lines. I mean, let's be real here. It's not like all of these lines have been together for three seasons. I mean, the top line has been the only one that's been consistent. Shen's playing with a new line mate in Kapanen. You've got Hayes, who's the centerman for a line that's got Yakub Verana and Sammy Blay, and then your fourth line. So all of these guys, it, it does also feel like, and I understand your one-and-done mentality because that's exactly what it looks like, which is the concerning part. But it also feels a lot like this offense is trying to not make mistakes on the defensive side because the scheme is switching up, that they're less focused on the offense and figure the defense will take care of itself. And look, they're not the only ones that have this early portion of the season with their offense. Edmonton, which is supposed to be a godsend in office, two games played and they've only scored four goals. And they're only putting together like 24 shots on goal. The Florida Panthers are averaging two goals per game. Buffalo's averaging one and a half per game. So this is the one area that I'd say I agree that the one and dones are concerning. But I'm going to give this till the end of October before I start to really get concerned about where the offense is. Only reason I'm concerned is because it's a trend from last year. And preseason. And preseason. It's, but it's at not the like, end of the season, the last 12 games, the offense looked better last year. Yeah, but that wasn't – what's the word I'm looking for? That wasn't really structured hockey for the Blues. And what I mean by that, that was essentially like, hey, there's 12 games to go. We're out of it. Just play free. Yeah. And this, it's not, there's no pressure like there is now. There, the season started. There's pressure to start gaining points early on. I, I'm concerned because it's a trend from last year. So we've got a lot of people that are saying, guys, it's two games in. I, fair. I, again, all of these are things that I have I, I said in the beginning. I'm monitoring these. I'm not freaking out. Again, they're they're one oh and one. They've got points yeah. in each of the first Nobody's two. Nobody's freaking out right now. There is no panic that is taking place right now. I, I do think it's a concern though. Especially because this is a team that I was hoping coming into the season would have that depth of scoring that we've seen in previous years. Thus far, again, two games. That's a caveat to everything we're saying here. I hope that it's just kind of the undertone. We should have this like on the YouTube stream, putting just flashing across Beware. the cry on the bottom. Beware, it's only two games in the season. We understand we're two games in. It's the first week of the season, but this is stuff that you got to watch out for. Um, the, the offense has been disappointing to me relative to expectations. And as we continue here, another one. Thank you, Brad Underwood. I am also a bit confused by the power play. Their penalty kill has more shots on the season than their power play does. In fact, the opposing team's penalty kill has as many shots on goal so far this year as the Blues do while the Blues are on the power play. So the Blues have an extra man and they have two shots on goal. Their opponents with one fewer player on the ice at that particular time also have two shots on goal. 
Alex, Cairo, and Thomas have combined for zero shots on yeah. goal in seven minutes and 40 seconds on the power play so far this year. I would say that is something that is probably not going to continue. I, I'm going to guess that Kyra at some point will shoot the puck uh, and it will go towards the net. But it is something that is definitely standing out to me as a concern. Early. Yeah, well, this is tied into the one and done concern. And this is where, I mean, you nailed it because the power play is so bad in terms of there's no sustained offensive zone time. And I was just pulling this up to see how they were on the power play in terms of face-off. So the Blues against the Dallas Stars were 50% in their face-offs, and they were 20% in their face-offs on the power play against Seattle. Oof. That's Yikes. a problem. If you're not winning the face-offs, well, welcome to 25 seconds off the clock already, maybe more for the Blues on the power play. They struggle in terms of entering the zone. They struggle in terms of puck possession and retrieving the puck. What? What else is there for a power play? Well, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) You're saying saying it's right. (laughs) But when they enter the zone and when they do get set up, all of that remains, you know, to the side, like, if all of this happens, there are two shots. They're not even two shots. Oh. They're not hitting the net, and it's coming out. the The passing is off. I know what they're trying to establish, but right now it's not working. And it would not surprise me if they consider switching up the power play units in terms of maybe spreading the wealth a little bit, and rather rather than being so top heavy with Thomas Kyrou, Buchnevich. I mean, you kind of have to now. You're forced into that because Buchnevich is out. Well, yeah, now with Buchnevich, but it might benefit them to get more of somebody who can retrieve pucks on that number one unit because there is so much of dangle when you enter the zone, try and make the pass, it gets picked off, and now you're going back to retrieve it. This I would absolutely be concerned because this is a trend that carried over from last season. All right, final thing. I'm feeling too good about these two games now. Well, Third. the first game I am. BK's so I just to feel this negative BK's, after this segment. Well, BK's buildup is the uh, Blues uh, bashing segment of our week. There you go. It's time for my third question about the Blues. There's another open. <laughs> oh, I like that one the most. <laughs> What happened to this depth of scoring we've been hearing about, man? <laughs> and what happened to the speed with the Blues wow. that I was hoping that we would be able to see? <laughs> this The speed was never there. I think we someone pulled the, the shade over our eyes like, hey, guys, this is a fast team. They've got fast players on this team. So I didn't expect this to be like vintage Red Wings where you're getting a whole bunch of 20-goal scores. I, I thought they would have like some dudes that could put some points up, though. It, it feels kind of as if it's Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas, and that's kind of it. <laughs> I don't – and obviously Buchnevich will, will get up there, and this could change very soon. But I don't get the sense that the Blues are rolling out four lines that are going out there to do the same jobs. Like, there's not four lines that are consistently putting pressure on the opposition in the offensive zone. Man, this fourth line is doing its job. I want to say that on the front end. I don't exactly create a whole lot of offense, Alex. No. Um, the the second and third lines. Now, there have been moments where I think Hayes and Blay, th- those guys, they've had moments where it looks really good. I haven't really noticed Verona, though, and I was probably the guy that was the most excited about Verona, probably overly so, if I'm being honest. I, I do wonder, did we overestimate the potential depth of scoring to this team? It's two games. We'll see. Could change by the next one against Arizona, but... 
it's something that's in the back of my mind. Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at the, the numbers so far through two games, like Jordan Kyra is leading the way with 10 shots on goal. Uh, second and third place are Justin Falk and Colton Pareko. That's a little bit of a problem. Falk's got seven shots. Pareko's got four. And now you've got guys with three, two, and one. That's a problem. Um, this... This, I think, is going to improve what big picture with all of this, because it is surrounded by offense, is I think people are going to have to understand what Craig Berube's been preaching. And it's like they're going to have to get comfortable in these low scoring games. They're going to have to get comfortable in these two ones. Absolutely, (laughs) they do. But look, the problem with this is if your power play doesn't convert, they've had, what, six opportunities so far this season and have not scored a power play goal. Frankly, have put two shots on goal on power play. That's where the depth of scoring is going to be coming in for you. Like if your power play is not successful five on five this season, because they are putting such an emphasis on the defensive side is going to be a lot of boring the other opponent into the point of they make a mistake and the blues capitalize. It's not the Edmonton Oilers wheeling and dealing. It's not the Buffalo Sabres that are going into the zone and having these elite shooters. This is going to be more of the, the, wear down your opponent in terms of getting frustrated that they can't actually get in on the goaltender, that they try and get aggressive in the offensive zone on the blues and the blues pick it off kind of thing. Absolutely. And the blues pick it off and they got the odd man rush the other way. It's the exact same scenario as to what Jordan Kyrie scored that goal with Robert Thomas. Seattle tried to get aggressive on a pass right in front of the net picked off by Thomas. And it was a rush up the ice. That's this offense this season. The problem with that though, is you do need to get some more, puck retrievers that can hold on to it in sustained zone time. And when you sustain that zone time, hit the bleep in that. It's basically what teams in the NFL have started doing against these high level quarterbacks. Everybody's playing cover two. Why do you do that? Well, because when you play cover two, you're taking away the deep shots that yep. are were there previously when everybody was playing the cover one style that or cover three where the middle of the field was closed and you could kind of get these seam shots. Well, now that's not there anymore. Now, now you got to take what the defense is giving you. And the hope defensively is, hey, if we force them to make a 10 play drive, eventually the offense is going to make a mistake. Maybe that's running into a sack. Maybe that's throwing an interception. Maybe that's running on first down, throwing an incompletion and boom. Now you're in third and 10. We've got you where we want you kind of thing. It's basically what the Blues are doing. They're trying to make every possession offensively for the opposition take as long as humanly possible. Eventually there's a mistake and boom, now we can capitalize. It's not a aesthetically. It's not a particularly appealing style no, to watch. It's and boring, I, but it can be effective. Yep. This is what Mike Hill wanted to do when he first got here to St. Louis. Now, nobody's going to want to hear that name because it obviously went incredibly poorly. This but is what early Ken Hitchcock on, did too. it actually went really well early in the Mike Hill experience. And then it just dramatically fell off very quickly. But I'm not I'm not panicking about any of this stuff. The Blues were expected to come into the season hoping to compete for a back-end playoff spot in the Central Division. Playing this way could earn them that opportunity. You can win with goal suppression. You can win in ho- or in baseball with run prevention. It's not all that fun to watch, but the Brewers have been doing this now for like seven years in baseball, and it, it, it works. It's just a different style than what I personally was expecting from this team, and so it's taking some time for me to adjust to a team that has so many names that we've become accustomed to, you know, putting up offense, now playing more of a defensive style. Yeah. And we'll see if that is something that ends up sustaining over the long haul. Coming up next, we got to get into some NFL quick hitters, including, man, some big-time teams that struggled offensively over the weekend. Which one of those is most concerning, and which one of those are you saying, eh, I think they're going to be A-OK moving forward? We'll get to some of that coming up next here on 101 ESPN. It's the first week of the season. <laughs> 
to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex and T-Bot, I'm BK. Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters. It was a weird weekend in the NFL, man. Some upsets that took place. Offenses that have been great all season long. Kind of throwing us off the scent. Chiefs failed to score 20 points against the Denver Broncos on Thursday night. That was just the opener of what ended up being a really ugly day of NFL football. As great as Saturday was, and honestly, you could go back to Friday night as well with that Colorado game. It's a fun weekend of college football. The NFL kind of stunk this weekend. It was brutal. Tough to watch. So let's start with some of those offensive struggles, Alex. Chiefs, Bengals, Seahawks, 49ers, Eagles, Bills, and Ravens. Seven teams that we went into the weekend thinking, ah, pretty good offense, really good teams, all struggled offensively. Out of those seven, who would you pinpoint as saying, okay, I'm most concerned about this team with what's going on offensively with them right now? It's the Bengals. They had one good week offensively. I'm like, oh, they're back. And then you laid that egg against Seattle. And I get you won the game. Doesn't matter. Seattle's defense is not great. Like Joe Burrow's pretty much had as much time as you can ask for for your quarterback to find the options. Jamar Chase was great. But you know what I learned about the Cincinnati Bengals in the last two weeks? If Jamar Chase isn't open, the offense is an elite. And that's a problem if that's your only option. So I'm I'm starting to really wonder if Cincinnati is a playoff team this year. I've got concerns with Cincinnati and Baltimore. Those are the two for me that stood out. Can I hone in on Baltimore for you? Yeah. That's my concern as well. I think we overreacted a bit, myself included, to the struggles against Pittsburgh because most of that was drop-related. Their, their receivers were dropping everything. But there comes a certain point in time where a team tells you who they are repeatedly, and we just have to listen to them. The Ravens have told us repeatedly this year, the scheme is there. It's all working. Guys are getting open. And they can't seem to make plays. It gets bogged down in the red zone and they just, they can't continue to put together successful drives. Even in this game against Tennessee, man, this is a pass funnel defense. They are wanting you to pass the football. Okay, great. Ravens have this new style passing offense. Lamar has been playing mostly pretty well this year. Receivers can get open against it. Well, they didn't do much through the air against this Titans defense. I understand that it's in London and weird stuff happens in London. I'm officially wouldn't say concern. I just think the Ravens are an average offense. I think that's who they are. And if you're going to be an average offense with a above average defense, not a great one though, I don't think you can be a legitimate contender in the AFC this year. I mean, you guys are preaching to the choir right now. I I was told Todd Munkin is going to be a godsend to that team offensively. And he has not been like the routes just don't look like they make sense. Lamar Jackson looks confused on the field. This offense is an average offense and their defense isn't good enough to be an elite team. So I, I they're another team that I don't know if they're playoffs. See Lamar finally running this week. That was the one thing that did end up kind of yeah, changing protect the ball when he runs. They, yet, they have yet to have a 100 yard receiver on the season. Not a single one of them. And, it's, I, it's and weird, I thought man. they had the weapons to do that when they came into the year. I mean, he had Zay Andrews, Flowers, Flowers, Andrews, Odell Beckham. And he's done like he's nothing in that offense. He's been a terrible offseason signing. And then on the Bengals, too. Like, I I thought this would be the week that we definitely honed in on. Hey, Burrow is healthy. It's time to go for the Bengals. I mean, he looked healthy. And for a guy being open like 7-11, I didn't get him the ball very often. So I... I have some concerns about Cincinnati as well. All right, let's continue with NFL quick hitters. Which team that pulled off the surprising upset on Sunday is more likely in your mind to evolve into a legitimate contender in the AFC by the end of the year, the Browns or the Jets? Man, I, and I, you can we can call contender like a playoff team. Yeah, 
I want to say the Browns, but man, that quarterback situation is is very odd. But Cleveland's, I can't pick the Jets because it's been inconsistent. One week, the defense looks like it can carry into the playoffs. And then the next week, they look like they don't have a defense. Cleveland, at least, has been the same every single week. Their defense leads the way, and their offense is just good enough. So I'll say Cleveland here because I also think the AFC is so wide open that somebody could absolutely jump into a playoff spot. Yeah, see, I think I would take the side of the Jets. The defense is was dominant again last night. I, I actually like the defense, and they've got a better running game, I think, with Brees Hall. When Brees Hall is right and playing That's well, true. they can run the football. And, and Ford's been a nice surprise for the Browns, but... I, I don't trust either quarterback, Wilson or Watson, so I'm just going to lean on, okay, which defense do I which defense do I like plus the run game? And that's where I'd give the edge to the and, Jets. And if Aaron Rodgers does come back towards the end of the season, well, that changes everything. It would change everything. Uh, you're right. No, what you said is 100% correct. Oh, I know. Though. He's a miserable you-know-what. He's not coming back. Whoa. He was throwing the football on the yeah, sideline. Okay. torn Achilles, Did man. you see that mustache? It's coming no, back. I did. I did. He, he's, he's not. He's, he's not coming back. Is that who you emulate yours after? God, no. I actually do agree with you guys that it's the Jets. Look at their schedule coming up. They've got three wins. You probably got to get to nine by the end of the year, right? They can beat the Giants. They can beat the Raiders. They can beat the Falcons. They can beat the Texans. They can beat Washington. They can beat Cleveland. They can beat New England. There's seven games that you can absolutely see them winning. The Jets have just enough game breakers offensively. If Garrett Wilson and Brees Hall stay healthy, to be able to get enough big explosive plays to keep them in games. And that defense is really good. It's why everybody was excited about them before being honest going into the season. The belief was, hey, elite level defense paired with an elite level quarterback. It was basically the Patriots model, but just in the Jets system. So I, I think that they're a team that can be a contender. I do not believe in this Cleveland Browns team at all. I don't believe in them. I think they're frauds. I think they had a really great game plan against the 49ers offense. I think this team's going to start turning into a pumpkin once again, sooner rather than later. All right. Next question for you as we go through NFL quick hitters, Alex, as you're watching on a weekly basis, who is the team for you that you watch and you say to yourself, man, they are a quarterback away. They've got everything else in place. It seems like, but they're one quarterback away. And if they could get that guy in place, everything would probably fall into place for them as a legitimate contender in the NFL. I mean, it's, it's kind of the Jets. <laughs> fair, like honestly, the Jets fair. are the ones that I look at and say they're a quarterback away because all of the other ones have their top quarterbacks. I don't think the Raiders are that good, even though I know they won against the Patriots. Um, and all of these other teams I look at and say, like, they've got them. Tonight, I've got a couple. Tonight, I'm actually kind of curious what Dak looks like. After as, <laughs> as crappy of a week, they might be the team that's a quarterback away. But I'll say the Jets because they're the only one that I could look at and say they've got the stuff. That, that's a good one. I, I would throw Cleveland in this conversation. Deshaun Watson not living up to the hype of when they traded for him and giving him the fully guaranteed deal that they can't get out of for, what we say, three years or something like that. They're a team that I look at and I go, gosh, if Deshaun Watson was the guy you saw in Houston – We'd be talking about them as a contender for the Super Bowl. He's just not that, so I think they're a quarterback away. Got two teams in the NFC South that immediately come to mind for me. New Orleans? Nope. Colts? Nope. That's the even in the NFC South? No. Oh, yeah. They're in the, <laughs> the Bucks and the Falcons. I think both of those teams are a quarterback away. See, I don't think the Bucks are going to look like this in a couple of weeks when they trade away Mike Evans. Maybe not. But as I've watched them this year, I think to myself, man, that's the same defense that won them a Super Bowl. It's the same team. Yeah. Like their their defense is really good. They Detroit, we gave Detroit all the flowers. They deserved all of it. They struggled to get things going offensively yeah. for about three quarters in that game. And eventually the defense broke because the offense could get nothing going. They are a terrible running team and they've got to eventually get that thing figured out. They need to improve the offensive line, but they've got enough weapons. They just don't really have a quarterback. That 
of them with Baker Mayfield, I think that's a team that might end up making the playoffs. Tampa Bay's pretty good. They just don't have a quarterback right now. I and know then the Atlanta, other one, yeah. Dude. I should have thought of this one. Desmond Ritter is terrible, man. It's awful. He's put what? up some numbers, like volume stats over the last couple of weeks. Some of the throws that he made against Washington were among the worst that you'll see in the NFL this yeah. year. Well, and he makes them because Washington is just embarrassingly bad. Did you see... Arthur Smith's face after that big interception in the red zone. Yeah, after they, what, didn't they take a delay a game too? Dude, he was beside himself. Just give me a quarterback. Them saying immediately we're not interested in Lamar Jackson this offseason is looking like a worse and worse decision every single week. If you put a top 15 quarterback on the, hell, if you put Kirk Cousins on the Atlanta Falcons next year, that's a team that not only can make the playoffs, that's a team that could go on a little bit of a run because they've got weapons, they've got a good offensive line, a great running game. They just need a quarterback. So for me, those would be the two that immediately yeah. come to mind with the Atlanta Falcons being at the top of that list. Yeah, I, I should have thought of the Falcons. They're, I, they're the they're the poster child of give me a quarterback, please. They should I, trade a ton of assets to get up into the top three if they came next yeah, year. I, Nobody's going to probably trade out of those, but it'd yeah. be helpful if they could. I would put Washington in this conversation, too. I, I like some of the weapons that they I have. Like They've they got have a decent a team, defense. I, I think they would be a guaranteed playoff team if you inserted a top 15 quarterback. I, Sam Howell, I don't trust. I have the same feeling about Sam Howell as you do with Desmond Ritter. Oh, now, Sam Howell's bad. He's, I just don't feel the same way about the supporting cast as you do. Yeah, I I like their weapons. I don't think it's anything that's great, but I think if you put a quarterback on that team, like if Kirk Cousins was there, that's a playoff team right now. Agreed. But they, they're stuck with Sam Howell, and they were another one of those that was like, oh, Lamar Jackson. Look, let me tell you about this guy we drafted in like the fifth, in the fifth round. round. That always works. Yeah. Whatever. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But coming up next, Dan O'Dowd, former Major League Baseball general manager, put together a list of the things that a championship caliber team needs in order to win in the postseason. Alex, I want to go through this checklist with you to find out how many items the Cardinals can check off going into the offseason. We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Dowd was on MLB Network yesterday talking about what it takes to win a World Series. Turns out it takes a lot of talent, and that is a prerequisite. It also takes uh, leadership in your dugout, grittiness, and a little bit of luck. We knew all of these things, though. Mix all that together and get bounced in the wild Yeah, you got good vibes. Good vibes is basically what it takes, uh, according to to Bruce Bochy. You should have said grittiness. That was game over. So, Alex, he also put together some, like, legitimate, I think at least, uh, a list of players, a list of things that you need. It's almost the ingredients list. You're going to the grocery store. You're thinking about making up a recipe. You're thinking to yourself, all right, I need a pound of chicken. I need uh, four shallots, those kinds of things, right? Dan O'Dowd put together, what are the ingredients Hold of a on. championship? Hold shallots? Roster? Shallots are great, Nobody man. Nobody buys shallots. you making at your house? You can make a little uh, sauce. No wonder why you have shallots. Could I can't make my pasta sauce because it doesn't have the shallots. Oh, shallots are underrated, underutilized in, in cuisine, in my opinion. All right. In cuisine. So the first thing that Dan O'Dowd starts with, Alex, four aircraft carriers. Now, what he means by this Cardinals is got a lot of airplanes. Four superstar caliber uh, players. Uh, like Helicopter, private jet, commercial plane. I'm going to throw out the four cart. players that I would consider to be in this criteria. You guys tell me if you agree with this, though. 
I think Goldie Arenado Contreras are absolutely aircraft carriers. And I think Jordan Walker will be an aircraft carrier for the Cardinals in 2024. Do you guys agree with that? Do you think they have four of them right now? Because the way when I hear aircraft carriers, I'm assuming players that carry the team when everybody else fails. Correct. And I saw that this season from Goldie, saw it from Arenado. We saw it from Contreras. And I'm agreeing with you. Jordan Walker can carry this team if he has to. I I would agree that he's in that conversation. And I think that you could put a handful of others in there. Like if everything goes right, Newpark could be in that conversation same with Anol and Gorman I think those are the other two guys that I would consider like on the fringe being those aircraft I wouldn't put guys. Gorman in that one I think, yet, I, I think he's got a potential I think be. he does too I because if he can put up like Schwarber type numbers Schwarber's view does yeah, this I feel like you got I feel like to be an aircraft carrier you got to do more than just hit home runs really that's all Schwarber does yeah well, I mean, he gets on base too. I, I Nick Castellanos, same thing. Nick Castellanos, I think, would be considered an but, aircraft carrier. See, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't. I would like when I look at the Phillies roster. I'm thinking aircraft carrier. I'm going Harper, Trey Turner, JT Real Muto, and then I don't know if Schwarber. I would put. I don't know if I would put those guys in there. Man, when if the Cardinals were playing the Phillies in a postseason series, the first guy that we talk about is probably Harper. The second guy we talk about might be Schwarber. Yeah, because well. he can just crush you. He. he Gets up into the box in any given moment. He can homer. You guys are just too easy on making up aircraft carries, and Fair I like enough. to be hard enough on we this team. We all agree, though. Those are four guys yeah. that are, like, whether we want to disagree on the other players that could get into this criteria or not, you have the four right now Stick on your Stick to roster. the program, T-Bone. The Move next on. thing that he says, you four <laughs> solid everyday position players. I think the Cardinals have this as well. I think they got plenty of these guys. Donovan, Gorman, Newt Bar, Edmund, those would be the four that immediately come to my mind. If you want to throw other guys into the list, you probably could have other pieces that could be um, viewed yeah. in this category. Wynn was the one that came to mind for me because of his gold glove defense. Sure. They've got four of them. Um, we're all in agreement there, right? Yep. Yeah. Next thing, two impact starting pitchers. All right, game over. <laughs> I have zero. I do not believe that the Cardinals currently yeah. have an impact starter on the roster. I agree. I think that is. those are two guys that you have to add this offseason. Otherwise, you don't have the criteria met here. Yeah. Yep, I agree. I, they don't have a number one or a number two. Yeah. They, I, they need someone that can take the ball, and whether they're a, viewed as a two across baseball, like I think Sonny Gray's view is a two. Honestly, I think Pablo Lopez is viewed as a two. Agreed. They can take the ball. They can elevate their game to the next level in the playoffs. That's Jordan what, Montgomery probably viewed as exactly. a two right now. Guess what he's doing? Nathan Avaldi viewed as a two right now. Guess what he's doing? Do you, you need guys that can fit into that criteria at a minimum, and so far they do not have any of those guys. The other thing that he's got is two depth starters. I do think they've got those taken. I think they got one. I, I can't put Matt's in this category because he's not healthy. And I'm See, not going to have them all season. Because I, I feel like you could say that about a lot of guys across Major League Baseball that are viewed as depth starters. Many of them are expected to start 20 games for their team next year. Like Andrew Heaney fits into the criteria of a depth starter coming into a season. Uh, you don't expect a ton out of Andrew Heaney. Dane Dunning, depth starter. Is he really a guy that you're super excited about going into next year? No, probably not. But he's there, and he's going to start probably 20 games for you, and you feel fine about it. Yeah. I think Matt's good. But well, my concern Matt's with plus Thompson, that's, maybe um, that's the way to do it. Because my concern with Matt's is you get the slow start out of the gate that's just never correct, and then he gets injured, and he comes back, and he gives you two solid months, and he gets injured again. Like, I can't rely on that. But if you put Matt's and Thompson into the same conversation, then, yeah, I'd say you got two impact yeah. back-end starters. That's what I was going to say is I think you definitely have one, and I think I think you have two, but it's a combo of sure. Matt's plus whoever you sign in free agency. And I do love combos. Either way, I think you've got that taken care of. Next thing up, a dominant closer. I think this is an interesting discussion. Do the Cardinals currently have a dominant closer? We know who the name would be if they have it. It's Ryan Helsley. Do you guys believe that he deserves to fit into that criteria coming off of last season? Man, I don't. I I he wasn't up until the, when he came back and when he was out for three months and you had like a month and a half where he was a dominant closer. 
I don't know if I have him there. I think he still has the potential to be that, which, like, I'm not saying get rid of him and go find a dominant closer. I'd start next season with Ryan Helsley in that role, but I'm not sold that he can be that from start to finish. I think I would put him in the dominant closer. I think so, too. Because I think the struggles early on were health-related. And I think when he's when he's healthy, last year he was healthy and was le- legit stud back in bullpen. I think was an all-star, too. Last This past season... In September, 11 and two-thirds innings pitched in 11 games, .70 RA, 1.54 whipping on opponent, batting average 108. I think it's just health was the biggest concern with him early on in the year. And when he struggled when he first got called up to the majors, I'll, I'll never forget the spring training two years ago. We had Katie Wu on. She, we said, who's someone that's impressing you? She said, Ryan Helsley. And we, I think all three of us went, Ryan Helsley. Yeah, right. Because, But he'd been dealing with a knee injury that we didn't know about. And he got that cleaned up. And now that then he was healthy and he's pitched well when he's been healthy the last two years, I think he fits into this dominant closer category. I think I agree with you. And that has a trickle-down effect into the next criteria that Dan O'Dowd has for championship contending teams. Two impact setup relievers. This is one that I'm willing to listen to arguments on as well. Giovanni Gallegos for almost his entire Cardinals career has been capable and really has been deserving of this kind of criteria. I could listen to an argument either way on whether or not he is currently that player. But if he's not, I think he fits into the criteria that is next of the two depth bullpen arms. And I think Jojo Romero is another guy that fits into that criteria. Do you guys think that as of today, Giovanni Gallegos should be considered as a impact setup reliever yeah i would say so i think out of those four pieces you're looking for two impact setup relievers and two bullpen pitchers i think you got one of each i think romero's a really solid bullpen option for you and i would still put gallegos in that now i know he had plenty of blown situations last year and it wasn't right but that's what you get with everybody you're not going to get 162 of a guy who is going to be a perfect setup reliever I i think gallegos in a big situation can be that for you i don't think they have one I don't think they have one impact setup reliever on the roster. And I I know the projections will tell them, oh, off year for Giovanni Gallegos. They can't plan like that. They got to plan on, okay, Gio had an off year, and this could be the beginning of the end for Giovanni Gallegos as a top-end reliever. So he slides down to that other category that you just said. And I'm not, I don't trust JoJo enough yet to put him in that conversation. He did it for one year and part of a year, and he got hurt. I, I just— I need to see a you bigger sample a size. I think he's a depth bullpen okay. I don't yeah, think yeah. he's an impact setup reliever because I, I got to see it for a longer period of time before I just go all in, chips in on JoJo Romero. I think they got to find two of those guys. We've heard the report from Derek Gould. They're looking for two bullpen arms this offseason. They should be looking for two impact setup relievers this offseason. That is the entire criteria for a championship oh, contending roster. What about the dugout leadership? Yeah, well, what, was, what about the grittiness? I said they've what? got that. They're good. Oh, do they? Yeah, you good. sure about who's the grittiest? The grittiness? The grittiest. Donovan. Yeah. He's a solid player. Tommy who's, who's the leadership? What do you mean? Yadier Molina. Oh, He's a bench coach. Well, yeah. <laughs> Duh. I Obviously. Joe McEwen last year. about this already. Um, I, I think that it is increasingly clear. We knew this, but two impact starting pitchers have to be added to this roster. You can call them whatever you want in terms of number of what kind of starter they are. Impact. You get into a postseason. You expect them to go five to six innings and give up one or zero runs. That's your your expectation going into a game is that if you can get that out of your starter, you feel pretty good about it. So two impact starters and then either two impact setup relievers or one impact setup reliever and a depth bullpen option. I think you need two, two guys that you could use in the seventh inning and you feel good about. 
if you can do those two things, you add those four pieces to this roster. I think going into next year, you're feeling pretty good about where you're at as a, as a team. Yeah, I think you got everything on the offensive side. I think right now it's just pitching. And I look at this as you still need to get yourselves your two stud pitchers. I think you do need to have another elite arm out of your bullpen. And I'd like to see them get something else that I can rely on on the back end of my rotation. Did you guys see the report from Bob Nightingale, by the way? Bobby Boogie? Bobby What's he Boogie? Up? What are we doing? He should be covering the World Series. In his USA Today article yesterday, he said, quote, the St. Louis Cardinals will strongly pursue Minnesota Twins free agent Sonny Gray this winter. Man, I, I love how the Cardinals are telling everybody that will listen. Hey, hey, Bob, we want Sonny Gray. Put that in your article. Yeah. Sonny, hey, we Buster. really want you in St. Louis. <laughs> hey, mention, mention how close we are to Nashville. Mention how close we are to Nashville. Everybody is connecting the Cardinals to Sonny Gray. Now, it's the easiest thing to do, right? It's the classic Cardinals move. Fewer years, a little less money than the top end starters. We're shopping and not quite the top shelf, but like really nice liquor that's going to cost you, you know, <laughs> 10 bucks a pour instead of the $25 pour that you're going to be able to get. That's where the Cardinals typically shop. So it's no surprise they're connected to this player. It's also a potentially really good signing. I would have no problem with them going out there and acquiring a Sunny Gray. I think my guess for what this Cardinals offseason is going to look like, I think they're going to sign Sunny Gray. I think they're going to trade for another starter. Maybe it's Dylan C, somebody like that. And I think they're going to go sign a big-time reliever. I, I think that's something that we haven't talked a ton about that they're probably going to go do. You guys remember, they had the uh, the talks with Jordan Hicks prior to the deadline about, hey, Ooh. do we want to re-sign him long-term? I don't know if it's Hicks, but like if they got involved with Josh Hader, it wouldn't surprise me. Oh, the, I know. the dude who said we're not in a playoff position? Oh, hasn't learned? That's your guy? I think this team's going to be aggressive when it, if they end up saving money on that second starting pitching option. So they're only spending $20 million on the rotation this offseason. You're going to have some money to be able to spend on this bullpen. And if they end up going out there, hey, we're all, we're all going to hate the signing the moment that it happens. And then we'll get into next year and we'll be like, holy bleep. This team has Josh Hader and Ryan Helsley and Giovanni Gallegos and Jojo Romero coming out of the back end. All right. I could kind of get down with that. I could see how it ends up working out, even though it would be a terrifying signing, to say the least. Oh, my. I hope they don't God, do that. That's awful. They've got to learn their lesson from checks, notes, Brett Cecil, Greg Holland, Luke Gregerson, all those guys. Yeah, None of those guys were elite, though. Yeah, yeah they, but this I, is a different I wouldn't class. give. But they, the whole idea of learning from that was one, don't overpay the middle class. Yes. But two, also don't hand out a long deal to relievers. Yeah, I'm with you, but this would be. Yeah. This is a different caliber of pitcher. I mean, Josh Hader is arguably the most dominant reliever uh, of the last seven years. I would. Now, if you want to talk about Andrew Miller. But he was washed up at the time, too. I agree. That's the thing. This, this is a guy Hader's that's still in his prime. prime. My more concern with going after Josh Hader is like that grittiness you talked about. A dude's like, oh, we're not in the playoff run, so what do I care? And, and let's, not, let's not just overlook the fact of, and again, we're just speculating. We're not reading any report. Let's not overlook the fact that what was it that they said to Ryan Helsley in his arbitration case? Dude, you don't take the ball every day. You're going to go pay Josh Hader? That's what I'm saying. Like, attitude. Like, if you want to talk about the eliteness, yeah, go get me Josh Hader. I'll take that dude right now who's going to be 30 and give me two or three shutdown seasons. Somebody said, what happened to don't pay relievers, guys? Yeah. I... I believe in that. I'm tell I'm not telling you what I would do. I wouldn't I wouldn't pay Josh Hader. I'd trade for the it, reliever. I think it'd be really fun. I think it'd be exciting. Oh, and oh, if they decide to go out and do it, I would me, probably convince it, myself that it's smart. Give me if somebody Mo, else. It's not. It's clearly not. If bro bro. If Whoa. Mo Bro Neil? <laughs> if Mo brings us up in a meeting, Gersh should pause, <laughs> look him in the eye and go. <laughs> 
We're not doing that, Mo. Junk drawers next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. and T-Bone on BK. All right, let's get to the junk drawer. T-Bone, what do you got for us today, my man? All right, so guys, I saw this on social media over the weekend, and I I want to know your thoughts about it. You guys are happily married. BK, I know you did a registry uh, for your wedding. Did you, I'm assuming you did one yeah. too, Alex? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so... Yeah, Bed Bath & Beyond, which I don't think exists anymore. Mm, that's it's odd. Yeah. Uh, but so I remember like on BK's registry, you can put down, you can like scan things, put in there like we would love this beautiful dish that we'll never use in our house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like in BK's, you could donate or not donate, but you could pay money to the, uh, the honeymoon, fund. honeymoon fund. Yeah. So we should have did that and said we got a Roomba. A cup. Oh, nice Dude. choice, though. If I could give one piece of advice to any of you lovely couples out there that are getting married. Don't ask for the butter dish. Don't don't ask for a Roomba. Oh, my God. I love my Roomba. Are Do you, you kidding me? Are you absolutely this is what I well think it worth is, right? the money? Oh, could not disagree more. Oh my god, the it's machine a that robot yeah, that runs down in vacuums. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a terrible vacuum. First of all, oh no, horrible vacuum. No way. Yeah, Second we, of all, you're not cleaning your Roomba. Do you clean it? Yes. No, you don't. It's a terrible vacuum oh, compared no, you're to what insane. you actually use for your vacuum. Well, yeah, it's not an actual vacuum. Correct. But it's just picked... vacuum, dude. No, it picks just up. vacuum. I don't have time to vacuum every yes, single day. No, I schedule no. my Roomba. Every day. Well, yeah, I schedule it every day to pick up the dog hair. Like, that's oh, okay. my bigger issue is yeah. that it gets the dog hair. Crumb-wise, that's what the dogs are for. Yeah, no, crumb-wise, it picks up the big stuff. Don't get a Roomba. No, you're crazy. Get a Roomba. All don't right. listen to BK So I'm here. curious your thoughts on this. So a couple in Texas is getting married. Married and they were filling out their registry. And instead of having a honeymoon fund, they have added the $231 speeding ticket that the groom got to the registry, hoping that people would donate to the speeding I ticket fund. Why? Because he doesn't want to pay the $231. <laughs> I love it. It's $231, man. Is 100% going to Venmo him $231. Yeah, I'm all in on this yeah. idea. That's, yeah. that's a it. waste of a wedding thing, though. I feel like you oh, should be able no. to put a bunch of services yeah. on there, right? Like, Hey, hey uh, I want to get a relaxing massage a car detail. Put the car detail oh, fund exactly. on there. That kind of stuff, right? Yeah. My my transmission went out. Please donate. <laughs> well, if you're gonna, automatic start. Please if you're going to do that, just put your routing number for your bank account so you could pay my mortgage Boy, off for a couple of well, months. Why not? I think you should there. put yeah. T-Bone whenever he gets married, yeah. God forbid. Uh, I think he should yeah. be able to put six months rent. <laughs> on, That'd be great. Just get the fun Donate going. Donate to the rent. Fix my deck before it falls off. Exactly. Yeah. I'm old. The deck fund. The deck fund. Man, I may not even put anything on the registry, but all my different funds. That's what people do. People Oil do change. money now. Yeah. yeah. People Oil just say, change. bring me cash. I think it's better. Yeah. I think it's better. See, we, we, did the, butter dish. we did the fund because we didn't live together prior, so we didn't have anything. So that's why we did it, because we needed silverware. We needed dishware. We needed all yeah, of that, that stuff. that makes sense. But, like, be, you and Kara lived together, so you guys had a lot right. of that stuff. So that's why that makes sense. Yeah, I'm all aboard this idea. I saw this. I don't even know if it's technically legal or not, but I'm all aboard. If someone would pay $231 hey. for your speeding ticket... Put it on the registry. If I could go back in time, knowing that I was going to have kids, I would at the at. Celine. Celine. No, that's not Celine. That's Cher. That's Cher. You're close. If I could go back in time, T Bone singing, 
and knowing I was going to have kids, which we did, just tell people to give me baby formula. Well, that would look weird. Uh, no, it wouldn't. Yeah. It'd just be like, hey, look, I'm just getting just ahead of this. married, no kids. How about if you I, donate baby formula? If I could have gotten everybody at our wedding, I think we had 150 people. If I could have had 150 people bring baby formula, I would have never had to buy it. Formula or diapers? Which one would you have preferred? Uh, for, like somebody buy for me? Mm. Formula. Formula is just a joke. It's See, absurd how much they charge you for that. It is. You're right. Um, I, I mean, everything with babies yeah. is expensive. But like, like diapers, you wedding, get bulk. The wedding uh, stuff, that's all absurdly priced, but at least it's a one-time offer. Yeah. Like, like a, you do it for one day, hopefully. I mean, some of you, maybe two or three, but hey, God bless you. Oh, God you bless. do you. You do it for one day, and you move on. With the baby stuff, man, I got multiple years of this. See, the, the, and it is a relentless <laughs> kick to the gonads. I bu- every single you month. buy bulk in both of them. Bulk in diapers, I could go a month before I have to buy again. Bulk in formula, I'm buying a whole new thing in a week See, and a half. I'm learning a lot I here. should be able to put on the on the registry. Like when we have our next kid, one thing that I'm going to do for the registry, I don't think you get to do it for the second kid. We're doing. I don't even think they do registries for the second right? kid. Yeah, um, you already got the stuff. Our, our fund is going to go for daycare. Cause it's well, ins- it's a second mortgage, dude. Well, my girls, my uh, my oldest be in preschool next year, so I'm dreading the Got moment that that's gonna happen. What? And now they're getting into activities. Preschools expensive. Oh. <laughs> Believe me, it's all expensive. And now I'm they're just like, ready for grade school, man. <laughs> Even more expensive. expensive. And then wait till they well, get to high school. Some of us are are going the public route. <laughs> wow. Where my taxes go to pay for his school. Yeah. Well, believe me, that, that was the negotiation between me and my wife. Grade school will be private, and then high school is going to be public. <laughs> One of them, I do them both. <laughs> Working radio, okay? Alongside <laughs> Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. Coming up next day, we gave you all of the concerns about the Blues earlier today. One positive that has emerged, at least from the last game, Jordan Cairo is starting to show you the kinds of flashes that you'd want to see from him as a two-way player. We'll get to it next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Left wing McCann going to the far side for Everly. Terrific back check by Jordan Cairo. 100-foot back check there for Jordan Kyrie to break up that play, and then the Blues go back the other direction. Kraken get it in front. The Veneers now to McCann. Terrific block by Kyrie. Thomas to Kyrie. Score! Trading chances, and the Blues get the goal. Kyrie's first of the year. Inside Alex and T-Bone on BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Hey, there's a lot of criticism that's been thrown Jordan Kyrou's way. Much of it is deserved over the last couple of years for his lack of defensive interest, honestly. It's not so much an ability thing. He's had moments where he looks good defensively. It's his willingness to get back and play defense. Well, on Saturday, I think you saw why he is such a frustrating player defensively. Because when he's into it, Man, he looks so good on that side of the puck. Had a couple of really great back checks, was able to create his goal based upon a play that was in his own zone. Alex, can they get more of that out of Jordan Cairo? And if so, 
What does that mean for him as a player? Yeah, I mean, they absolutely can. Look, for all the criticism we've had on Jordan Cairo this season, he has not had a game where I felt like he was a liability defensively. Now, as Mike McKenna said on Friday, is he straight leg in it sometimes? Probably. Sure. But uh, again, like the system that they're using, F1, as Craig Brewery labels it, is the important forward to get back. That's typically the centerman. But if your forward's still coming back, Jordan Cairo showcased his speed. If this is the type of player he is, well, you're going to have more success on that top line. And I wanted to pull this up just to find out the high danger scoring chances that they allowed. Uh, Pavel Buchnevich and Thomas and Cairo, they allowed three of them against the Dallas Stars. So that one was a tough game for them. But in the game against the Seattle Kraken, they only had one allowed and they had three the other direction. So that's Robert or that's Jordan Cairo's ability to back check. And that changes some things. The way he takes that step north, though, is when he's able to possess the puck more in the offensive zone. Because if you back check, great. If you're more responsible in the defensive zone, awesome. You're not straight-legging it, but if you're also not creating and holding onto the puck in the offensive zone, then you're not doing much. You're just going back and forth, and your shift is going to be done in 45 seconds. So it's going to benefit this team if his speed is back-checking and breaking up plays because the odd man rushes don't happen as much but you're going to put your team in a position where they're going to be having those odd man rushes more if you don't hold on to the puck in the offensive zone. Yeah, if they hold on to the puck more in the offensive zone and this continues with Kyrie, that's going to be a really good line for the St. Louis Blues, and there's no doubt about it. I think it can be a good line anyway, even if it is kind of one and done. But we said all year long, what's the goal for Jordan Kyrie defensively? Can you be average? And get rid of some of the straight-legged moments. Yeah. And I think you saw that in the game against the Kraken. I, I thought he looked great against Seattle. He came back, back, chick, knocked down a pass. They go the other way, and they end up scoring a goal in the game, too. So, like, I, I think he's looking better, and I think he's understanding the system more. And you could see, I think he was in the Seattle game, where he did something, and Ott immediately goes to him and starts talking with him. And you can see Cairo starting mm-hmm. to understand it, communicating with the coaching staff. So the way he played over the weekend was very encouraging because that's the guy that you expect to see. That's the guy that you want to see if you're the St. Louis Blues, the guy that's back-checking, playing average defense, and he's using his shot and using his speed to create offense. And it's important because that's the way that the Blues have won so far this year. They have won a game and then were able to get a point in the other based upon goal suppression. It has not been their ability to go out there and score four, five, six goals so far. Alex, my question to you is twofold. One, is that the way that the Blues are going to have to win this season is by these low-scoring affairs? And two, is that a way that they can win the rest of the season? Because it's one thing to need to win low-scoring games because you don't have a ton of offense. It's another thing to be capable of doing that over the course of the long season. Sometimes we've seen, you know, for example, the Miami Marlins this year in baseball, they won a lot of low scoring affairs early on in the season. And then as the season went along and they were in a bunch more of these run, one run games, their their magic started to run out a little bit and the tide started to go in the other direction. Can the Blues keep this up and do they need to keep up this uh, current way that they're going about it? Well, let's start with the can they because I absolutely think they can keep this up if they stick to the commitment of the scheme. It, Everything we've seen, and I get it, it's two games, and before I can sit here and actually judge this team, I'm going to give it the month of October because they've got a lot more games against more of those middle-tier teams that Doug Armstrong's talked about. But look, you just went up against a team that's expected to be a Stanley Cup contender this year in Dallas, and Dallas did not have the elite scoring chances that people predicted from them. Seattle, on Saturday, they're an elite skating team. They're fast. They've got their odd man rushes, but when they were in the zone, there was a lot to the outside. All of this relies upon, though, 
the the defensemen sticking to the scheme in terms of making sure that their zones are taken care of so those back doors aren't allowed and it's the forwards making sure that they're being responsible enough that when the puck is on their stick they skate it out of the zone that's when you don't skate it when you try and pass it you put turnovers on the team and then you're an odd man rushes and now we're in a bad spot so they absolutely can continue this because we've seen it work already in two games and I'm curious to see more will they have to absolutely because if they don't play this way now we're going back to last season. And last season was all over the place. You're skating nonstop. You're stuck in your own zone. Frankly, we saw that a couple of times against Seattle to where they broke away from their scheme. They were chasing the puck, and then it just kept being the cycle game. When you're in that established zone, you can't really cycle on it because you're not allowing those those inside areas. So you have to play this way. And if this is going to take a step back on offense, I, I think people are going to have to understand you're going to see a lot more of 2-1, 3-2 games until your power play starts to hit. When your power play has success, welcome to you scoring three, four, five goals in a game because teams are less reliant to take penalties against you. It's almost like the Blues are a baseball team that has a dynamite bullpen and they know it. And they're just trying to get to like two or three runs against the opposing team starter. The problem is they're also striking out a ton, and if they don't hit home runs, they can't score. Yeah, and like that's that's kind of where this team is at right now is they don't have the ability to hit a consistent single to get guys on base. They don't really have a counter punch. It's just it looks same old, same old yeah. when we're going out there. And again, it is two games. This could change against Arizona. They go out there, put up five goals, and suddenly we're looking at it. And we're like, okay, they do have the offense. It still wasn't really there the first couple of games, but it. It does look a little different stylistically from what I'm used to seeing from this squad. And my concern is I don't know if you can continue to win this way in the NHL. That's my concern. And because the NHL is now, it's early on, it's been a little surprising. It feels like goals are down right now in the NHL. I mean, you mentioned Edmonton struggles and Florida aren't struggles. Goals typically up in the beginning yeah. of the season? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's yeah. a weird trip. So I, I don't know if something's been discovered by some of these NHL teams that have slowed down these offenses or the offenses are just waiting to wake up. I don't know if they can continue to win like this because it is just kind of a slow, methodical, we're just going to kind of grind our way through the game. They've, they're they going to have to get the offense going. And I, if that means you got to sacrifice a little bit of defense, they may have to, but I don't know if they can. That, that's my concern. That's why, like, I I hate to say it this way because I don't know if you can mean any, win anything meaningful in this system, but that wasn't really the goal this year. The goal is get to the playoffs. Yeah. I don't even know if you can do that with this system. I. It just feels like you're going to have to kind of get more offense, and if that means abandoning a little bit more defense, they're going to have to do that. This feels tough to sustain. The offense is going to come. Like it's this. It's not going to be a team that only scores two goals a game all season long. Like There are going to be moments that teams break down. There's going to be moments that the Blues get their opportunities, and they click. This is why the early portion of the season is just so tough. But, look, this is an exhausting style to play if you're a player because it's reliant upon you blocking shots. It's reliant upon you making sure that you're focused on the defensive side of the game, and if you're not, the breakdowns take place. But, as Mike and kind of told us on Friday, it's no coincidence that teams, it's not just the Blues doing this, other teams are doing this scheme. They're, they're copying what Vegas did last year. And Vegas was middle of the pack in terms of goal scored. The team scored 267 last year. They were middle of the pack in terms of shots on goal. They averaged about 30. And they won from goal... Per, uh, uh, why am I... Suppression. You suppression, thank you. You're there, man. They allowed 225 goals last season. So you can do it. But you better be ready to play an exhausting style of hockey for 82, and that's where the issues lie. The closer comp is probably what the Islanders did last year, where you watch them and you're like, oh, this is not fun. Yeah, but they know um, they have an elite goaltender that can make those saves for them to be a little bit more aggressive. I know. 
but they barely scored. Like their their yeah. goal production last year was so incredibly low. They scored 35 fewer goals last year on the season than the Vegas Golden Knights. So the Golden Knights were like a pretty good offense, but not necessarily elite. The Islanders knew like we have one way to win. And my my I don't know if it's a concern, but my question about the Blues right now is is that going to be what they are? And that's not inherently a bad thing, man. Last year, the Islanders made the playoffs. You can make the playoffs this way. And in a transition year, if you take on this new identity and you say, hey, it's going to be ugly. We're going to have to grind this stuff out. And it's going to go back to what it was kind of in the Ken Hitchcock days of, hey, we'll score three to two, two to one. That's going to be a bunch of what we uh, how, how we win hockey games. I mean, nobody hates a winner. And if they go out there and win a bunch of games this year, more power to them. It's just not the same style that I have become accustomed to watching the Blues over the last few years. And it's certainly not as fun or entertaining of a style to watch. But again, if they win, then who cares what the style is? I do think it's going to be what's necessary, though, because I I don't know that they have the game-breaking talent that I thought they might coming into the year. They, They need more. If they're going to play the style that I thought they were going to be, they need more out of Kevin Hayes. They need more out of Yakub Verana. They need these goal scorers to really step up in a significant and that, way. And that's going to come in on special teams. You're yeah. going to have to score on the power play to get those. But you know where this falters? And you know where we really get to find out who this team is? It's when you lose a couple of games, one nothing or 2-1. to one. And when some of these big-time players go down with injury. I'm yeah. curious to see how they respond to this Pavel Bucinavich injury. Man, he's your best all-around forward. He's a great defender, and he does produce offense, especially on the PK. PK has been one thing that's really gone well for this team. How do they look without Pavel Buchnevich out there? It's, it's a lot of questions about the Blues, but they are 101 to start out the season, and you can't ask for really much more than that. Coming up next, I thought it was an excellent weekend in college football. The start of the weekend, though, I think kind of went under the radar because of everything that took place on Saturday. Has the shine officially worn off on the Colorado story? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Count that, that big bang. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. So going into the weekend, Friday night, we kicked things off early. With a couple of college football games on Friday night, and then the late one was Stanford at Colorado. Alex, Colorado went up 29 to nothing at halftime. Yeesh. They lost the game 46 to 43 in double overtime. I hate to see it. The Buffaloes are now four and three on the season. They have lost three of their last four games. Their lone win was a three point win last week on the road at Arizona State. The upcoming schedule for Colorado. At UCLA, Oregon State, Washington State, Utah, and Arizona. All of those could very well be losses. Have we seen the shine officially come off of Colorado this year? Yeah, yeah, we did. And I I think the frustration on Deion Sanders' face uh, during that second half collapse told you everything you needed to know. Like, you rubbed that lamp, that magic lamp, so many times in the first start of the season that all of the magic disappeared. And they get Hunter back, Travis Hunter, and they're thinking that's going to make that much of a difference. I think we saw the best of Colorado and what they're trying to accomplish at the beginning of the season, but now it goes back to what Sanders has been saying of, we need more we need more talent in our system before we can sit here and act like I think they're going to be good. I think you've got the coach's mindset and scheme that's in place. The question is going to be, can you can, can still recruit? But the rest of the season, I don't think it's going to be very pretty for them. Yeah, I 
I think the shine is worn off on Colorado. I think mostly because like now they don't feel like Buffalo's but like a baby Buffalo. You know, they they were a team that it was like, man, this team is great. And now you've seen that it was just kind of an early season. I don't want to call it a fluke because they do have some talent on that roster. But I mean, that loss to Stanford that can't happen. You can't lose a game which you're up twenty nine nothing and you're flaunting around. Look at my wrist. Yeah. Look at the watch I've got. You can't end up losing that game. And and the trash talk that they like to throw around out there, like it's not going to have the same luster anymore now that you've got three losses. You've dropped three of four. And again, like the loss to USC, Oregon, like those those made sense. Like those I can see. The loss to Stanford that just can't happen. It's you're going to lose your yeah. you're going to lose your luster because that's not they haven't been a football program since Andrew Luck left there. So the fact that you lost to them and blew a lead just cannot happen. Hey, they had McCaffrey. I think they're no longer a story the same time. for me. Like I I won't be going into weekends moving forward and saying to myself like Hey, I want to watch the Colorado game. Now, if they're on and there's nothing else going on at that time, like if they're an 11 a.m. kickoff and the 11 a.m. slate stinks, yeah, I'll watch them, especially against some of these like the UCLA, Oregon State, Utahs of the world, I'll I'll have that on in the background. But otherwise, they're not appointment television anymore. And they were for the first, you know, six weeks of the season. And then I watched on Friday night against Stanford. That no longer exists. If you don't win those games that you need to, you are no longer going to be a part of the big-time story. And a big part of that is because it's been a great college football season, man. I think Saturday we saw the game of the year. And I think it's the game of the year because, in my opinion, Alex... Oregon and Washington are the two best teams in the country. I know I'll get pushback on the text line from this because there's Big Ten, Big Ten fans in our audience and there are SEC honks in our audience as well. I get it. Those are two of the best conferences in college football. They've historically been the two best conferences. Hell, the SEC for the last 15 years has been the best and there's no second. But this year, man, you ain't the best anymore. It's the Pac-12. And the two best teams in that conference played head-to-head on Saturday in Washington in what was an unbelievable football game. I hope we get to see this one again, man, because Oregon played its butt off. And I think if you play that game again, I would not be surprised to see Oregon come out on top. They had some weird situations that took place in the red zone, went for it multiple times on fourth down, did not convert on either of those opportunities. That's a team that I am very excited to see moving forward. I, I think they're going to be on a mission to get to that Pac-12 championship game and avenge their loss. I think you saw two of the best teams just in college football play each other. Like watching that, I I made a side bet on this game and I took the under because I thought it was going to be more of a I, wow. I thought it was going to be more of a defensive style game and man, it was not. I mean, this was just straight two quarterbacks heaving the ball downfield. Watching both Knicks and Penix, I. I I love this type of game because it's two teams that people overlook because of the name recognition in college football. It's like, oh, well, you got Georgia and Ohio State, Michigan, Texas. You're looking at these teams. But then you watch them play and you realize that they're on a different planet in terms of how they play offense and just their overall style compared to some of these other teams. Because like watching that and then going back and watching when Ohio State and Notre Dame played against each other. This is night and day. These two teams would wipe the floor with Ohio State. Yeah, Washington's got the best offense in the country. I, I have no doubts about that. Penix is just Great. slinging it. I think he's the favorite to win the Heisman right now. Um, I, I think they're a playoff caliber team. Now, I'm not sure it's going to be one of Michigan or Ohio State that drops out, but I, I'm with BK. I hope that we see that Pac-12 championship game become Oregon and Washington. And I think if Oregon beats Washington, I think you got to put them both in. And then it just makes everything more complicated across the landscape because – Oregon is definitely a top 10 team, and I thought they were more balanced than Washington going into that game because I thought they had a better defense, and Bo Nix, at quarterback, made them a good offense. They just didn't have enough to stop Washington. I mean, hard to blame them. Nobody can stop Washington. I learned I, I, nothing about either of those teams 
Like, my opinion of them did not change in that game other than to say this. I think they're better than I even expected them to be coming into that game. Yeah. Like, what they were able to do against one another made me feel better about both of them in the long term than what I had felt previously. And I already really liked those two teams. I, I think they're the best two teams in the country. Like, if I had a top 25 ballot, you can't do this because people will yell at you because one of them has a loss. I would have them one, two. I would have Washington at number one in my rankings today. I would have Oregon at number two in my rankings today. And frankly, I would have Michigan at number three in my rankings. And I think I would have Florida State at number four. I would not have Georgia as a top four team in the country right now. I would not have a SEC team as a top four team in the country right now. I think you could make an argument that Oklahoma should honestly be at number five in your rankings over any of those teams from the SEC. So if you had to put your current top four together, Alex, Based on what we've seen this year, so often this ends up being a, well, historically speaking, here's what these teams... No. What have you seen this year? Who would be your top four teams in the country, Alex, I think you, you put together the list? I think you just named it. It would be Washington 1, Oregon 2, um, Michigan 3, and Florida State 4. And, and, I mean, 4, you could throw pretty much anybody in there. I mean, Texas losing to Oklahoma's takes a, a massive slap to them. I, Ohio State, I know, put up points, but it was against, what, Purdue? So I, I would probably have those as my top four, but I would imagine Ohio State's probably going to be at number four over a Florida State. I, I would go Washington one. I agree with that assessment. I would go Michigan two. I think I would still throw Georgia in there at three because they yeah. are undefeated, and the defense is still just it's really, really good. good. Offensively, I do have my question marks about them, but I would put them in three. I would put Oregon at four. I, I would have them in the top four. I Florida State is starting to show. I know they won big this week and they're playing Syracuse, but they had started to show some signs of a little bit of okay, is this team going to get through this ACC? I need somebody to explain to me this this love with Georgia, other than what we've seen previously. Like, if you eliminate history, just watch the team that we have actually seen on the football field this year. Man, they beat Vandy by 17. Am I supposed to be overly impressed by that? No, I'm not. They beat South Carolina by 10. South Carolina's not very good. They gave up 450 yards through the year this week to Graham Mertz. T-Bone, you remember Graham Mertz? He played in the Big Ten for a long time. The guy's not very good. I don't remember Graham Mertz. He's a super average college quarterback. Auburn, they beat them by seven. Auburn's not very good. That that 3-0 start to the season, it was a mirage. It's not real. Their other three games that they've played so far this year, UT Martin, Ball State, and UAB, throw them out. You learned nothing about the team in those three games. The one game that they're living on their reputation for right now is against Kentucky. They beat the hell out of Kentucky. First of all, it was a home game. Second of all, they deserve credit for it. But Brock Bowers is now out for the foreseeable future. He's not going to play for the next four to six weeks. I think they will finish the season with one, if not two losses. I do. And if that makes me crazy, cool, fair, no harm, no foul. Uh, My biggest take coming into the season, and it remains this way now, I think Georgia is well overstated in terms of how great they have been because of what they've done previously. We do this a lot in college football where we rely on what previous teams did, not on what the current talent that is assembled on the field is doing. I think Georgia is... The fact that Washington is five and Georgia is one in the AP top 25 right now is crazy. There is nothing that Georgia has done this year better than Washington other than defensively. And I I think Washington's a much better team. By the way, do not sleep on Penn State. That team is really good. And they have not. Now, they haven't played really anybody. I mean, they had a top 25 matchup with Iowa, but it's Iowa that doesn't really count. They are beating the door off of everybody like they should be. And they've got Ohio State this weekend on the road. I love Penn State in that game. I think Penn State wins that. that. Have you seen uh, I have not seen a line on it. I think it was, if I 
three. I think it was Four three in half. favor. Okay, wow. I knew yeah. Ohio Woo. State was favored. I, I might have won in my games. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like Penn State in that one, and I, I think if they win that game on the road, they're going to insert themselves into that conversation. And I think if they win that game, the top four teams in college football to me will then be Washington, Oregon. And then you can put Penn State and Michigan into that conversation. I, I can't wait for the college football playoff conversations that are going to take place this year. It's going to be wild. It, if Oklahoma ends up losing and you have an undefeated ACC champion, probably Florida State, well, buddy, the conversations about who gets in from the what do you do with these one-loss teams from the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun to be able to, to navigate through. Coming up next... There's a statistic that was floating around around baseball yesterday that makes me wonder about the future of Nolan Gorman here in St. Louis. And I'm not talking about trading him. I'm talking about the opposite. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. T-Bone, I'm BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So yesterday, Alex, Sarah Langs, who writes about baseball for MLB.com, she put out a tweet that I found really interesting. Teams this postseason that out-homer their opponent are now 15-1. and Let me say that again. The team that hits more home runs this postseason wins 15 of the 16 games in which it has taken place. This is coming off of a postseason last year when teams that out-homered their opponents were 22-6. and six. So over the last two seasons, the team in any game that hit more home runs than their opponent has gone 37-7. and seven. That is quite the indicator on whether or not you're going to go out there and win or lose your ballgame. As we go into this offseason for the Cardinals and we're thinking about what they are going to do to best construct their team, not just for the regular season, but also for the playoffs next year, it's got me thinking a lot about the trading options for them, and specifically what all of this means for Nolan Gorman. I think he has the best raw power on this team. And as we go into next season, if you told me, hey, who's the best bet to hit 35 home runs during the regular season? I think the answer to that question is Nolan Gorman. And then I think about, okay, but what's what's really valuable in the postseason? Well, it's the home runs, of course, and specifically home runs from the left-handed bats. Guys, over the last three years, left-handed hitters, have an OPS plus of 108 in the postseason. Do you know what the number is for right-handed hitters? Last three years, postseason, right-handed hitters versus left-handed hitters. Lefties are at a 108 OPS plus. What are right-handed hitters at? I'm going to say, I don't know if they're it's bowling It's a BK average. game. I know. It's a BK game. I'm going to say 99. 97. 84. Ah, see, I knew it was a game. <laughs> there is a massive gap in the playoffs between left-handed hitters and right-handed hitters. Now, there is some selection bias here. Because some of the best hitters in the sport, especially over the last couple of years, are left-handed. And so in the postseason, you would expect them to be better. But I think this is a big enough sample size over a three-year stretch where you're seeing in the postseason, you get those lefty bats into your lineup, you can have some serious success. We talked about this last year with Jesse Rogers. One of the reasons why he was high on the Cardinals is because they had Donovan. They have Gorman. They have Newbar in their lineup on a day-to-day basis. That is something that I don't want to give up. I want to have the opportunity to have that left-handed hitter in your lineup batting towards the middle of the order that on any given night has the opportunity to go deep for you. And if you give that up this offseason, I do wonder, do you have the left-handed power in your lineup to really do damage in the postseason next year? I'm not even talking about for the regular season. They can get through. They put Tommy Edmond at second base, run prevention, you're good. 
Do you have the team that can get through October, though, if you give up that kind of left-handed power from your lineup, Alex? I don't think you do, but it really depends on the trajectory of Lars Nupar. Like, Lars does not have the raw power that Nolan Gorman has, but do you believe that Lars Nupar can be one of those players that can show up for you in the big moment? And frankly, that... It, it's weird because it remains to be seen for all of these guys because I haven't really seen it on the big stage yet. Like the playoffs are a different animal and Nolan Gorman, although he's got that raw power, can he showcase it on a playoff stage? But I don't want to move on from Nolan Gorman for this reason. Like you don't have somebody who can give you 40 home runs from the left side that can be hitting in the six or seven hole for you. Like that's what we're talking about with Nolan Gorman. But I also don't know if you can have the replacement of a Brendan Donovan, who is such a useful, stable player that can be anywhere for you. Same can be said about Lars Nupar if you trade one of those guys to get that starting pitcher over Nolan Gorman. Yeah, I, I've i been one of those that said, like, there's not an untouchable piece. More I'm watching the postseason, man, I'm thinking Gorman's kind of floating into that conversation because he does have the best raw power. And even if you think Nupar can project to being a potential 30-home run guy, he doesn't have the 40 home run power that Gorman can project to. I mean, we were talking about Schwarber earlier when we were talking about aircraft carriers and all this and that from Dan O'Dowd's list. And I, we mentioned Schwarber. And you said, BK, that's a guy that at any moment one swing can just kill you. That's Nolan Gorman. You hang a breaking ball. Gorman could deposit that thing into the third deck in right field. Like, that's how powerful he is. And he has the best raw power on the team. And it's from the left side. So the more I'm watching the postseason and watching this pan out – the more I'm leaning towards, I don't think you can trade Nolan Gorman. I, I think if, if you told me you can trade Gorman for, I don't know, Dylan Cease, or you can just go out and spend more money and go get Aaron Nola, I'd probably lean towards Nola. And I love Dylan Cease, but Gorman's bat is something that's going to play in the postseason because he can kill a right-handed pitcher at any given time. I think part of what might go into this decision is something that we brought up earlier today, which is, do you really want to add one of those big time relievers? And I know for you, T-Bone, the answer is like a definitive no. Like, just stay as far away from them as humanly possible. Do you have the sounder ready to go for us? Uh, There's a if not, I can give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> that is the voice that T-Bone's going to be saying to Michael Gersh when he says, what about, hear me out here, Josh Hader. Can, can we... Nailed it. Definitely no. No on that one. Big no from T-Bone. Most but I think Mike, part of what the Cardinals might be wondering to themselves is, hey, if we go out and trade for a front-end starter like a Dylan Cease, we now have money in the coffers to be able to go sign one of those high-end relievers, and now we can have RK can eat it too, right? We go out there, we add Dylan Cease and Sonny Gray, boom, we've got the two impact starters that we needed. We add... I don't know, Josh Hader and a mid-tier uh, bullpen arm, Pierce Johnson, right? It's just some guy that's pretty good that has had success over the years. And now you're feeling really good about your pitching, but you've traded Nolan Gorman in order to get it. Was that worth it? For the Cardinals, they may say yes because they got that reliever that they needed and they needed the money to be able to go get him. For some fans, I think the answer is no. And for me, I think I'm starting to trend towards no, but it really comes down to, man, what do they have available money-wise? If they have the money to go get Aaron Nola and Sonny Gray, just do that and figure out the bullpen later. If you don't, if you can't spend 55 to $60 million this offseason on two starting pitchers, that's where you get yourself into the position where you kind of cock your head to the side a little bit. You start squinting and you say to yourself, I, I think Nolan Gorman could hit 35 home runs, but could we get 
25 from Newt Bar? Could we get 20 from Donovan? Could Jordan Walker be the presence offensively that we're looking for? Could Alec Burleson find himself a little more power next year? Those are the kinds of things that you would have to convince yourself of. I am very hesitant, though, right now to move on from a left-handed power bat that has shown to have success in the big leagues when we're watching all of these teams right now constructing their their roster in a way where they've got lefty power bats that are hitting them through October. I, I, I think, give that up. I think you really have to find out what you could get on the trade market that doesn't involve Nolan Gorman. And that's where I'd be starting with this one. And look, I, I've been the one that said, like, I'd trade him if the right price was out there. But you guys are right. Like, I mean, he is the power that you're searching for. And let's be honest, his defense wasn't to the point where you can't trust him as a full-time second baseman next year. That's why you start in the trade market if you're not going to spend all of that money because that's really the first answer they have to come to terms with. But what can a Donovan get us? What can a Burleson get us? What can those guys packaged with something in the minors get us on the trade market where it sucks to have to give up? Like, I don't think I'd move on from Newt either because my outfield is really scary without it. it. Sucks to have to move on from a Brendan Donovan. But what else is out there that where I can say, but at least we kept the 40 the power potential. Like, maybe you could just use prospects like Team Kent's is a really exciting prospects. Don't get me wrong. And I would love to keep him around. But if you got to get an ace now and you got to give up a potential future ace to get him, does that mean that Gorman doesn't have to be a part of the trade? Like better could, be the right ace, though. Sure. Like Dylan Cease. Let's talk about Dylan Cease, right? The White Sox are going through potentially a long term rebuild. You want to talk about. Tink Hens and Devon Herrera and one of the other big-time prospects that we've got in our system. Maybe that's the way that you go about it. You know who's really exciting is Victor Scott. I love him. I want him to be the Cardinals' center fielder of the future as early as next year, potentially. If the White Sox are like, hey, we really need a center fielder. We, we want to add to our depth in the outfield right now, and we think Victor Scott's going to be a starter for us on opening day of next year. Are they willing to do a prospect package instead of something that's headlined by current major leaguers? Maybe that's something you look into. I don't know how the White Sox would view that. I think they would probably and probably should want to add Nolan Gorman as the centerpiece of any kind of a deal. Because if we're giving up an ace, we need somebody that we can we can show to our fans next year. Hey, this is what we got back in return. This guy's going to hit bombs out of the out of the stadium. I, I get it, but that's the kind of thing that if I'm the Cardinals. And you're John Mosellock. I'm trying to steal, steer the conversation more towards guys that are currently in the minor leagues. I just think it's a tough thing to do. Yeah. Problem is, though, you could try and steer people as much as you want one direction, but they know exactly what you have, and they're not going to move off of it, which is why you just have to come to terms with, guess what? We're going to have to muster up and pay a lot don't, of money to free agents this year. Don't overreact. I think the biggest thing they did in the Oakland deal for Sean Murphy, and look, we talked about it. I think they ended up doing well with Wilson Contreras. They said, we want Newbar, we want Donovan. And they went, nope, nope, all right. <laughs> Going to the Contreras market. They didn't wait out the process because Oakland was asking for the world. And then you see what they got in return, and it was they had to come down. And the same conversation is going to be true with the White Sox. They're going to ask for Gorman. Cardinals are going to say no. They're going to ask for a lot of top prospects. The tough part, though, is you're going to be doing these things simultaneously. So you're going to be in these trade market discussions while talking to free agents. And I think this is what happened with Contreras last year. Is Contreras like, hey, I want to sign. I want to find my future home. And so the Cardinals were like, okay, do we continue the discussions to wait out the Oakland A's or we're desperate right now. We have to get a catcher and it's possible. We end up missing out on Wilson Contreras. He signs elsewhere. And then we go back to these calls with the Oakland A's. They continue to hold us over a barrel here. And now we're stuck and we don't have a starting catcher going into next season. And we end up with Tucker Barnhart and they didn't want to be in that spot. That's the concern. And if you do that on the pitching side of things, Maybe Aranola signs elsewhere. You're trying to go this route with the uh, with the Chicago White Sox. They either don't trade him or end up dealing him elsewhere. And now you're like, uh-oh, 
We don't have an ace. Yeah, I, I think it's a little different this year because I think there, there's one, there's not a true ace on the free agent market. And if you're going to wait out the White Sox, there are plenty of pivots, I think, in free agency you can make. So if you sign, say that you sign Sonny Gray, because you're going you're gonna to have to sign one of them before you even get into the conversation of trading for another. And then you say, okay, we signed Sonny Gray. Okay, let's wait. Let's see if the, Nola signs. Oh, he did sign elsewhere. Okay, the trade market's not coming down. You can pivot to somebody else. I think you could pivot to a Maybe. Strom. I'm not sure that there is. Yes, I, I don't think they're interested in Stroman. I don't think Blake Snell's coming here. So, like, we start to whittle down the options very quickly uh-huh. of who you could actually go out there and acquire. Jordan Montgomery, maybe at that point he's already signed. It's, it gets tough. It, it goes quickly in terms of the guys that you actually want at the front end of your rotation. If I'm the Cardinals, I try and pull off the trade first. Like, I try and pull that trade off immediately as soon as the season ends. And as soon as that's, now I can really focus on free agency. Because if you're focusing on free agency and trying to work the trade market, one of those two things is going to get done with another team before you can complete it. We're hitting the BK and Ferrari Rewind coming up next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. show be sure to check out the podcast page 101 espn.com and the free 101 espn app is where you go to find it it's all presented by Dobbs tire and auto center you can also check out the show each and every day over on youtube youtube.com slash 101 espn stl the studio cams are powered by the air alliance team Alex will finish the show today by kind of recapping our overall thoughts on the Blues coming out of this weekend. You heard the, sh- the game right here on 101 ESPN, your home of the Blues. Alex had the pre- and post-game coverage for you. Your biggest takeaway was what? That the defense seems to be working. Bennington is a top goaltender, or at least playing like one right now. And this offense has me concerned. I'm not panicking. I'm waiting until November 1st before I can sit here and actually judge this team but there's got to be less one-and-dones and more sustained offense. I want to see a shift where the Blues have the puck in the offensive zone and switch bodies in the middle of their puck possession. Switch. Switch. I and I'd say showing. have been incredibly impressed by what we've seen so far this year by Jordan Bennington. We saw a similar start to last year, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the outlook for Benner this season. But the biggest thing is what you said, that they're, they're suppressing the goals, they're suppressing the shots against... I would like to see more shots for, though. And with Pavel Buchnevich being out for the next week or two, that is going to be difficult to accomplish. I do think this might just be the way that the Blues have to win for a decent portion of this season. So uh, they're back in action on Thursday. We'll certainly have more talk about all of that and get an update tomorrow on exactly what's going on with Pavel Buchnevich. Hopefully we'll talk with Jeremy Rutherford about all of that until tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.